the really evocative scene is the scene where Destiny has her burned alive to teach her mm -hmm. a valuable lesson and one that she carried with her for a thousand years. So it, it worked. Yeah. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> it sure did. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Eisner Award-winning editor-in-chief of Women Writing About Comics, Nola Fow. Nola, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am also doing great. I'm glad we managed to get together. I've wanted to have you on the show for ages, and you reached out about this character, and I was like, yes, this is the moment, because Inferno was just popping off and it was exactly the right time. We are here today to talk about Irene Adler, Destiny, wife of Mystique, precog extraordinaire, writer of Destiny's Diaries, the books of Destiny, whatever exactly you want to call them, old lady with the finest gams in history, probably on a 120 year old woman. And, and one of the coolest masks. One of the best character designs in a superhero comic, I think. Just to do a little business before we start, last week I announced the February slate. Questions are now open for Justin Park on Sunfire, Josh Cornillon on Stacey X, Victor Laval on Sabretooth, and Kat Overland on Chamber. Please send in your questions about any of those characters to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I am excited about the month to come. That's a preview of the future because right now we are here to talk about Destiny, who sees the future all the time. But first, Nola, I'd like to talk a little bit about the past, about you. What is your origin story with the X-Men? I know that you obviously are a longtime comics fan. You run a very high-profile comics periodical. So I'd mm -hmm. love to hear about where it all started for you with the Merry Mutants. Well, it started for me as a kid. I've been, I've been reading comics and X-Men specifically since I was about eight. <laughs> I am 38 now, uh, so straight 30 years. Um, the memories get a little jumbled because it was a long time ago. Um, but there are two specific incidents where one, my cousin got me into them because he was collecting, uh, he's 12 years older than me and he was collecting uh, during the uh, Outback era. Mm -hmm. So he was pulling everything from like the start of Excalibur and New Mutants and stuff like that. And our end of New Mutants, I guess is, is better from a little bit before Inferno to right after the second volume of X-Men started. So he had all of this uh, and he got me into it, just kind of talking to me about it and sharing it. And then he um, gave me his collection because he was going off to college and he had a college apartment on a college budget and didn't have room for either comics or a comics habit. So I had uh, the benefit of a huge chunk of 80s X-Men uh, early in my reading career. The other memory I have is uh, at some point, my mom took my sister and I to some antique shop or another, and I found a few early 80s X-Men issues in like an antique, in, in like a box. And they were not, you know, it was, this was, they were not bagged and boarded properly. They were not priced properly. They were like, these are comics in a little box. You can have one for a quarter. So 
I got like a bunch of the late 170s, uh, basically prime Paul Smith era. Yeah. Um, the From the Ashes, Maddie Pryor sweet spot. Yep, exactly. Um, specifically, the one that I imprinted heavily on was 173. Uh, which is the second half of the Japan trip. Maddie gets introduced to everybody and Wolverine takes Rogue on a mission and fights the Silver Samurai and uh, yeah. Storm gets her punk look and so much happens in that issue. And it is, to my mind to this day, a perfect issue of comic books. Did you get a chance to look at the stories that Claremont did for the Paragon collection? That I like Marvel not. made things? so. I did a bonus episode on it for the Patreon. If you are interested, I could send you it. Absolutely. One of them is set in that story. It's like a Wolverine oh. and Sabretooth. It's like a Sabretooth versus the X-Men story. Marika gets to shoot at him with a bow, which is pretty cool. Nice. It was just very much like, we're back in it. And I felt very, <laughs> I, I was sad that those two, the other one is a uh, prologue to Days of Future Past starring Sage and Bloody Bess. And okay. I was, yeah, like it, it's actually really good. I was actually really sad that those comics were not more widely available. Uh, Annalise Bissa edited those. They're fucking great. And I recommend them if you can get your hands on a copy of the Paragon Collection. But since only like 2,000 of them were made, we shall see. Hopefully they'll yeah. reprint those at some point. And I'm saying yeah, this is somebody who paid for the Paragon Collection. So I don't mind. Put them in a trade. <laughs> so you were on the X-Men train from an early age. Did you oh, just yeah. stay on? I mean, are you like a lifer like me? We're just trapped here. But now um, it's good, pretty, finally. We're <laughs> yeah, like, like pretty much. Um, I was in and out for the 90s, um, not by choice, but but more in a teenager who doesn't necessarily have access to funds to buy comics mm -hmm. uh, method. And then I was I was kind of out of comics as an adult early on which coincides with like the big Marvel crash in the early aughts and how they are late nineties, early aughts and how they almost folded. And I came back to comics around the late aughts and was basically back into X-Men immediately mm -hmm. during the like fraction Gillen stuff. And then, you know, being me and being as obsessive as I am, I immediately went back and reread everything that I missed because that's how I do things. That's been a lot of this podcast for me is I fell off around the decimation. I, so I come in around when you do, because my dad is a collector. Everybody's checking that box off on their fucking bingo card. Now my dad is a collector. <laughs> so I grew up reading, um, you know, I'm a little younger than you. I'm turning 34 in March, but okay. I grew up reading the eighties stuff mostly because that's what I became obsessed with because it's just, it's so good. So yeah, that's yeah. why like I'm attached to Betsy Braddock in her own body. That's why I'm like so fucking thrilled about where that's gone. That's yep. why I'm so attached to Madeline Pryor because I read the whole journey and I, you know, it makes me devastated. That's why I give a shit about Candy Southern because one of the most yes. dramatic stories of my childhood was the death yes. of Candy Southern. So, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff, early Excalibur, all of that. I fell off around the decimation for a while because I was really upset about the decimation. I thought mm -hmm. that it fucked up the minority metaphor that was really important to me as a gay reader, as a reader of Jewish descent, all kinds of different ways I related to the material. It felt like it was being taken away from me. And yeah. uh, one of the things that's been nice about this show, you know, I had read some of the Mike Carey stuff back then on and off because it was Mike Carey writing the X-Men, which was exciting. But like doing this podcast, I've gone back and read so much more of all the stuff I missed. Like I'm catching up basically. Yep. Sometimes that's more fun than other times. Like reading through all of Mike Carey's legacy was a great, great time. Reading through all of Academy <laughs> Acts was not my favorite experience in the world. But 
we learn on the job, as we say. How yep. did you get into comics criticism? When I got back into comics in the late aughts, you know, like most people, I was reading comic book crit that was available at the time. So Comics Alliance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I would just kind of like was following different sites and I had opinions and I would talk to it. And um, I became friends with uh, Claire Napier. Oh, I love Claire. She's fantastic. And at the time, she was in my position as editor-in-chief of WAC. WAC is women writing about comics. We're probably going to use those interchangeably, but that is yes. the, if you're not familiar, if you're not someone who reads a lot of criticism or reviews or anything, that is the website that Noah is the editor-in-chief of. It has won the Eisner Award twice now, which is yes. pretty cool. Yes. Um, I am. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, I would be if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> That's two more than I've got. Two more than a lot of people have got. There is that. But I met her and we just kind of, I think I actually met her. We started talking after Mark Wade got in the comments of one of her Comics Alliance pieces for a specific word choice that she used. So Claire was having this argument with Mark Wade about her own article. <laughs> it, was, it was an entertaining time in the way that dealing with entitled men on the internet is not at all entertaining. And we kind of became friends after that. A few years later when I started transitioning and I came out as NOLA, not only was she very accepting, but literally the day that I announced it, she DM'd me and was like, hey, pitch me anytime. That's incredible. I mean, that's such an incredibly validating yeah. thing for her to uh, do. So, you know, I chewed on that for a couple of months because I was not used to writing for a place or, or anything like that. And I was trying to figure out what kind of voice I wanted and what, what kind of thing I wanted to write about. And so it took me a while, but I, I started pitching and then I started writing regularly. And then when Claire decided that she was going to stop being editor, she recommended me to the editorial team. And that's how I ended up where I am. How has it been to head up that website while transitioning publicly and all that stuff? Has that been complicated experience? It hasn't been terribly complicated. I struggled a little bit early on with some imposter syndrome, but I have the support of a great team. Um, I have the support of a great community who has always been there for me. There were other trans women who were on the team as well and made me feel accepted. I mean, it, it kind of just wasn't really that much of a thing. That makes me happy to hear. Yeah. One of the things about me specifically, too, is um, there are trans women who, or trans people, I should say, who will talk about being trans and talk about the experience and dealing with things and will get out there and fight the fights that need to be fought. I just want to yell about comics. Like, that's what I'm here for. And I fully recognize that it, I am in a place of privilege where I'm allowed to do that. But also, like, I have fought in the fights in my life, and I don't want to be the person who's out there doing the trans experience thing all the time. I don't want to have to think about the fact that I'm trans on a day-to-day right. -day basis. You just want to live your life. Exactly. Exactly that. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I'm in a position where I can do that with WAC, and no one has questioned it, and no one has challenged it ever. No one That's has wonderful. mentioned it. And uh, usually I don't mention it either because it's just, it's just. Well, I wasn't going to mention it if you didn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I've yeah, only yeah. ever known you as NOLA uh, yeah. and I can't imagine that website without you running it uh, because I just, well, thank you. I was never really reading comics criticism until I started coming, until I came back in with Hawksbox, honestly. And so mm -hmm. getting my sea legs with all of these different websites and all of these different critics has been like, when I found out how young Ritesh Babu is, I wanted to jump out a window. I assumed he was <laughs> older than me, so smart. You know what I'm saying? Like getting yeah. a, the sense of who all these people are was, was an interesting experience. 
I will say there is no one in the small world of comics, criticism, fandom, reportage, whatever you want to call it, who I have heard more universally positive things about than you. Wow. Wow. From creators I know, from fans I know, from writers I know, everybody. I have never heard a single negative word about you ever. And to the contrary, like, you are wow, I gotta, really beloved. I gotta try harder. I know, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I gotta piss some people off. Nola's pin tweet, which I think of all the time because it is the attitude I'm now cultivating, is do not explain comics to me ever. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I have uh, I have had one too many experiences with people coming into my mentions on Twitter to explain something to me and sometimes even to explain something to me that I am literally already in the process of explaining myself. Yeah. Uh, because I'm talking, if I'm doing like, sometimes I will just get on Twitter for fun and I don't feel like writing a full piece, but I'll do like a little small panel yeah, of course. or something like that. And somebody will come in and say things to me that I have already said in the thread. It is the most frustrating experience. It's very frustrating. I It, it happens to me more as the show gets bigger, but they know I'm a guy. And mm -hmm. even as a gay guy, your bona fides in a lot of ways get challenged, but not like, can you be a nerd who actually knows comic books? Like everybody knows a gay X-Men fan and has since they were yes. a kid, you know, like yes. that's not that weird, but women, cis women, trans women, any person presenting even remotely feminine on the internet, honestly, it feels like it's constant. I mean, I, I see it all the time. I see it. Yep with female creators, which is the part that really astonishes me. These are women yep. who are professionally writing the comics that you are a fan mm -hmm. of, and you think that you should be explaining mm -hmm. the comics to them. And it's so assumptive too, because sometimes, just because a woman's involved, they'll, sit, they'll start spouting SJW stuff or something like that. And it's like, they always want comics to be like they were in the old days or blah, blah, blah. And, and with X-Men, it's especially funny because X-Men has always been political. Always. It's literally about social justice warriors. That's the premise yes. of the yes. comic. Yes. I mean, to go way, way back to how things used to be. I mean, this character, Destiny, is a character who's always been very important to me because I was a mm -hmm. gay kid reading the Claremont stuff. I knew I was gay. I was afraid. This was a time, you remember well, when it was not okay. Like, it was just not, I mean, I, I think... I make jokes like this comments for Gen Z or like here I am explaining. I don't think that people who are even under 30 now understand the dramatic sea change that occurred in American culture around like 2009, 2010-ish. Yes, there were people before that that were pushing for it and there was an undercurrent in things that was like, hey, it's okay if you're gay. Hey, it's okay, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't show gay people in pop culture. No. They wouldn't let us be on TV. Nope. Like, if we were, we were literally not allowed to kiss or hold hands or any of that. Yes. Because that yeah. was to, inappropriate. Mm -hmm. and, and to the point where like back when Ellen was in her sitcom days, mm -hmm. she came out as gay and then they made the character gay in the sitcom. Right. And then the entire show became about that. And then because it was about that, it got canceled because- Straight audiences weren't interested. Yeah, they wouldn't watch. Just in terms of like 
your day-to-day life. I mean, I was called a faggot every day in the halls of my high Mm -hmm. school. I was the only out gay kid in my high school class. And that happened because I flirted with the wrong boy because I read a signal wrong and everybody found out. It wasn't Mm -hmm. because I made a choice. And the boy in question is a good guy. I'm not, you know, if anybody's Mm -hmm. listening, who knows me from back in the day, like I'm not criticizing him at all. He was just taken aback and it got around the school the way gossip does. But the fact of the matter is once that happened to me, I had to make a decision. I was like, well, okay. Like, because I knew that I was certainly going to be gay in college. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want to at 16 say, oh no, I'm not gay. And then two years later, everybody go, I knew it. So I just went, okay, fine. But then I was the gay kid. I was one of the leads in most of the theater productions. So that was a nice, you know, I was perceived as talented. So there, I got some cachet that way. There were some Mm -hmm. girls who were popular, who thought I was funny. So they would tell people to back off or whatever. But for the most part, it was a really hostile environment. And so when I'm talking to other comics fans, in the 90s, even in the early aughts, I'm in high school in the early aughts, you know, I'm talking to them and I'm trying to explain to people that Mystique and Destiny are a couple in X-Men comic. Mm -hmm. Because I was on uncannyxmen.net when I was 12 or 13. Shout out to them Mm -hmm. as always. The show would not be possible without the repository of information that you have compiled. One of the greatest websites. Such a blessing. So I knew about Mystique's Le Mans I knew about all of that. I knew that Claremont had intended them to be Nightcrawler's parents. I knew this stuff, yep. but no one believed me. And I can't explain. I know you feel this way also, but I can't explain to people who are a little younger, who expect gay characters to exist in things openly, who expect representation at all, how mm-hmm breathtaking it is that the x-men line right now in the most high profile x-men story in 20 years is specifically centered around the abiding and eternal love of these two women who are married who kiss on panel who refer to their daughter as theirs who are now one of the major couples in the marvel universe i never imagine this was possible yeah and specifically because this is something that i brought up when hawkspox happened and early on in the donovex stuff is there are gay men in x-men right going back to north star but more recently with bobby and his his thing with uh, christian frost and and there are other some examples of the teens, as well. yeah yeah some of the teens but like up until extremely recently there was no gay female representation Right. Except for Mystique and Destiny, who were not allowed to be explicitly gay until that uh, History of the Marvel Universe miniseries. In 2019. Right. So that changed it. And then that became the first canon mutant lesbian couple. And one of them was dead. So that's the thing is like we make jokes about how the X-Men always come back. And it is a thing that happens in this franchise. but. Destiny died in 1989 when I was Mm -hmm. one year old and she came back in 2021 over 30 years later. She is one of the most consistently dead characters in the history of big two comics in terms of major characters who have died. 
Yes, Uncle Ben has come back more than Destiny, and Uncle Ben being dead is actually important to Spider-Man's Aunt May's come back twice. I mean, like, you know, (laughs) but yeah, Uncle Ben, Bucky Barnes, and Gwen Stacy Mm -hmm. all came back to life before Destiny. I mean, I guess our Gwen has never really come back, but you get what I'm saying. I think it's a couple different things. One is people are afraid to write a precog that's this powerful. Most of the mm-hmm. time, a precog in a story is going to be someone who has, it's going to be like Cordelia on Angel, where a vision hits you suddenly and you get a specific thing. But Destiny, so if you're not familiar with the character at all, guys, Destiny is blind, but she is at all times perceiving every potential future timeline that could spin out from the moment she's existing in. So she sees Kind of. It's a little bit mm-hmm. daredevil-y in that way, but not quite as well as him because she needs to assess which of the things that might be about to happen is the most likely thing to happen. And she's constantly well, it, running that. In some ways, it's almost better because Daredevil's power functions kind of as it's a little bit of a of a, like an ableist cure for his blindness. Right. That's what I'm saying, is hers isn't really like that. Yeah. He's blind, but he can see. Hers is much more of a narrative thing, whereas the tragedy is, I, I, I use the word tragedy in a narrative context, not in- Right, we're not saying that being blind is tragic. tragic, we're just saying the way yeah. it's presented. Uh, it is, she can see everything but exactly what's going on around her. Right, and I think that what makes that more interesting than something like Daredevil, and this is not to insult Daredevil, but there are a lot of blind characters who aren't really blind. Blind commentators, mm-hmm. I've talked about this a lot. Elsa Stienison, who I know very well, talks about this all the time. But with Destiny, she actually is blind in the moment. She can't mm-hmm. react yes. instantly to anything because she's yes. not seeing it in that way. What she can do, though, is shoot a crossbow because she knows where you're going to be in five seconds. Yes. And that is cool. It means that she sees differently. She doesn't Mm. have, it's not like, for example, when Betsy's eyes are ripped out by Slaymaster in Captain Britain back in the 80s, she's able Mm. to compensate with telepathy and see through other people's eyes all the time. So she's not actually blind as long as there are other people around her. Which can we talk for a second about how cool that is? Because seeing through other people's eyes is not the same as seeing through your own. And no. you're basically doing on the spot triangulation, yes. which is incredible. Incredibly cool. I mean, again, Betsy's my favorite character because yeah, she's, the she's best. so fucking I cool. I just feel like it's important to stress that this character, I think she was dead for a long time for a couple of different reasons. One is that people are afraid to use precognitives because they can break a story. One is that she was an old ass woman and not every comic book, especially going into the 90s when it was all like tits and ass a lot of the time. She was not necessarily that kind of character. Tits and ass and and energy projection, because that's an important thing. There was a, a real bias against characters who had non-visual powers. They, yes. they did this to Doug Ramsey too. Mm-hmm. They're not cool enough. Yeah. I think that with her, it was those factors. It was also that Mystique was more fun single for a lot mm-hmm. of writers. Mm-hmm. They wanted to have her fucking around. The 90s is like Mystique's ho phase, and it's very, yep. it's very yep. a lot going on. Also, they wanted to put her with men and specifically with Sabretooth. Like the Mystique and yes. Sabretooth thing was a and big Forge. 90s property. Well, the Mystique and Forge thing, yeah, I think that is. Claremont clearly had a plan there that he got pushed out before he ever got to do anything with. My favorite thing about the Mystique and Forge of it all is my 
take now, which is that what Irene meant was that Forge was going to produce the weapon that Mystique would need in Inferno. Mm -hmm. She implied that it was romantic because she knows that's the only way Mystique gets close to people is by fucking them. <laughs> like the, the thing that's really fun about Irene is that you can retrofit. If you take it as a given, she's always right. Then whenever you go back to a prophecy she's made, what's fun is no prizing your way yeah. to the way that she was right. Yeah. And that's been really fun. But it does take a writer like Jonathan Hickman, who's not afraid of that responsibility in the narrative of saying this character can see the future and she's always right. He said when he was on Jay and Miles recently, and if people haven't heard that, I really recommend they give it a listen. Jay and Miles had a sort of postmortem on the Hickman run and on Inferno with Hickman. It's really, really great. He mentioned in their spoilery bonus, I think the one about, I don't actually don't remember which of the two it was, but he said that one of the main reasons he came up with the idea of Krakoan resurrection, first of all, it was because in X-Men comics, whether or not Irene herself had come back, so many characters had come back that death no longer felt like it had any stakes whatsoever. Right. So you might right. as well get rid of it and establish different stakes. So right. that is well, just obviously it's, smart. It's also, it's it's kind of poetic in that X-Men was kind of the book that sort of made that into a thing. It made is, that, yeah. Made with Gene, the revolving door of death really. into yeah. a thing. And so if- Making it a mutant power. Yes. If X-Men is going to do that to comics as a whole, it's very poetic and very cool that- it's through X-Men that there is a way to codify that and work around it in stories. It breaks the fourth wall in a way that yes. makes the story more interesting rather than less interesting. Yes. So there's that. But he also said he was approaching it from the perspective of, I need Destiny back. So there had to be a way to bring Destiny back. And so- Same, Jonathan. Same. <laughs> he was like, I didn't want to do this, this story without that character because he's thinking about Moira. He's thinking about like who the opposite number would be. He was just like, it just didn't make sense not to have that character. So we had to have a way to bring her back. So wait, maybe everybody should come back. You know, so that is, mm -hmm. a lot of this springs out of her. And then of course, what he does instead to make us agonized is make it so she's the one who can't in the mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. The fact that we all spent two years desperately invested in Mystique getting one over on all these guys. Mystique, who is one of the most evil characters in this franchise. She is <laughs> an outright sociopath, cares nothing for anyone but herself and the immediate family members who she views kind of as extensions of herself, her wife, her daughter, her son. Etc. And even her care for those is very narcissistic and it's unconditional. Yes, yeah. exactly. We'll get to that in Wolverines, which is an interesting bit, the Charles Soul story around, because I just read that for the Laura Kinney episode with Zoe, and I had forgotten completely that Destiny was even involved in that, and she's actually a big part of it. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that their romance is at the center of everything when I had to argue with other kids at school that I wasn't being crazy and that they were a couple, it just feels really good. It feels really yes. good. It felt good before she was back from the dead, just to have it acknowledged, to have mm -hmm. it implied so heavily when Claremont returned to extreme, but then to have it really textual, actually uh, Marjorie Liu at North Star's wedding has Rogue say, I wonder if things would have been different if my mamas could have gotten married which was, I was surprised that got through at the time. Mm -hmm. 
And then for History of the Marvel Universe to be like two women who were in love, show them kissing, explain that they were Mystique and Dusty and they did important stuff. And then to have Hickman say, I want my wife back. Mm -hmm. When the comics had spent 40 years avoiding that word. Mm -hmm. Yep. I cried. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was... uh... I was, I mean, I, I fully admit that I was there uh, release day making uh, making Borat voice my wife jokes my wife, with Mr. Yeah, panel. Course, but... Um, but I I felt the same way. Like part of it is is I cannot I cannot not make jokes about things that I care deeply no, about. No, same. That's this that whole is, podcast is how much yeah, I care about I this stupid things. franchise. So all I do is make lewd jokes about it for three hours yeah. each week. Yeah. And, but yeah, it was such a pivotal moving scene, especially because like I said, those thrift shop issues that I picked up were mostly Paul Smith, but I did get 177, which is uh, right after Romita came back to the book. Mm -hmm. And that's the one where Mystique spends most of the issue fighting X-Men duplicates made by Arcade as a training program. Yes. She can kill the rogue duplicate, but she cannot kill the Nightcrawler duplicate because Nightcrawler is the child that Irene gave birth to. And that is the subtext there that is lost if you don't have that story. And then the scene after that is the two, is Mystique and Destiny in bathrobes in their apartment Mm -hmm. being gal pals. Yeah, my dad is famously bad at picking up gay subtext in things. And there are three in the X-Men that he, he's been on the show now, which is a cute episode. If anybody hasn't heard it, we did it for Thanksgiving on Sauron because he loves Sauron. But there are three that he picked up on. Like he didn't get Storm and Yukio or like there are many uh-huh. that are very obvious that he didn't get. He didn't get Kitty yeah. and Ilyana or Kitty and Rachel. Like he didn't get any of that. What right. he definitely got, he understood that Emma was calling Bobby a faggot in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. In after early frost, he completely where she was like, maybe you should get into interior design, Robert. Like you're uh-huh. never going to be, you're never going to reach your full potential till you admit what we both know or whatever. He got that immediately. Mm-hmm. But even as a child, because he was born in '63, he's picking these up like as a kid. He knew that Juggernaut and Black Tom were a couple, mm-hmm. and he knew that Mystique and Destiny were a couple. And yes. he said to me, he's like, if you knew any gay people, it's just it's there. And it mm-hmm. was specifically there in the way that gay people were talked about at that time. This yes. is Mystique and her best friend. This is Mystique and her friend who she lives with. These two women are foster mothers to this child. Like the way that it was spoken about in the comic was the way it was spoken about in real life. And he could recognize yes. that. Yes, because female friends live together and uh, hang around the house in matching bathrooms. Harold, that's, they're lesbians. That's like that's, yeah. you know, it's very that. <laughs> I think at one point in that scene, Mystique even has her head in Destiny's lap. Yeah. Yeah. Or like like resting her chin on Destiny's shoulder, or like they do. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's such an interesting dynamic in so many ways because first of all, it's like we can only get away with this really gay stuff with villains, right? Which is always mm-hmm. interesting. And there's a long yeah. history of that. But uh-huh. also it's so clear immediately that Claremont loves these characters. Mm. They become less and less villainous as it goes on because you can tell he wants them around all the time. It's also the visual that I think helped him get away with it because Irene being physically, she looks about 80 years old, it desexualized her to the readers, except when she's in costume and very sexual, which is 
there's something very interesting about the semiotics of this character. Like when she is in her high cut bodysuit with the legs out, honey, and not a single varicose <laughs> vein on those 120 year old thighs. But even then, like sort of the, the alien looking headpiece, like there's something yes. eerie about her always. Yes. And because of that, she was able, I think, to be so clearly Mystique's lover mm-hmm. without Jim Shooter having a cow about it. Like it was uh-huh. coded just enough. Yes. And so it's beautiful to see them out in the open. It's also, you know, it took me a while to decide because I loved that visual and that, that Raven didn't care that Irene was old. Well, Raven was old too. Like they're like both they old, it's that Raven doesn't on. age, yeah. right, yeah. That's the one frustrating thing that I do have, like that I, one thing that I am frustrated about with more modern mystique appearances is she was originally drawn. As a woman who was like 50. Yeah, like she yeah. had, she had like a very, kind of straight um angular features sharp nose angular features yes like sort of kind of some bags under her eyes even like yes. she definitely looked like she had lived a life yes and i do wish that that part would come back um, yeah but i will say i you know i was initially taken aback when irene came back young in mm-hmm. inferno but the more I think about it, the more I like it, because first of all, I did some math and it's the age that they were when they first met. And if we assume that Destiny, Irene Adler, is the Irene Adler of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia, which uh, I think she is at this point, after Teeny's story in the Pride Anthology, where they fight mm-hmm. Moriarty, I don't think you can deny it, right? Claremont set it up pretty affirmatively, but it's now really clear. It also came up in Chaos Oh, yeah, you're right. It was in Chaos War. So, you know, once we establish that, we know that Irene Adler in that story was born in the 1860s. We know that she met Mystique at the earliest around 1895, which means Mm -hmm. that she's like 40 now, which is fine with me. I don't have a problem with her coming back as Rachel Weiss. That's like absolutely fine. The other thing I like Rachel, is Rachel Weiss, Destiny. I love. Oh, that's that. my that's my casting for Destiny as like. Oh, she I is love now that. They just I used her that. in the Black Widow movie, unfortunately, because I yes. really. I, so I mean, one reason is I I'm very and there's nowhere this is going to come up in the episode because it's not canon. It's literally just like my extrapolation. I am mm-hmm. very very personally attached to a head canon of Destiny as a Jewish character. Um, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Irene Adler in Scandal in Bohemia is Jewish. Mm-hmm. implied certainly she's american so that's the one detail that's kind of a weird discontinuity here but she's born in, she's born in austria this one is born in austria yes the irene adler in the sherlock holmes story is american but i feel like yeah. you could find a way to hand wave that just that point of discontinuity adler is not in germany and austria necessarily a jewish name in america it is very frequently a Jewish name. So yes. the Irene Adler of Scandal and Bohemia, I think is very clearly supposed to be Jewish. And I extrapolate that to this character. The reason why it matters to me with this character is because first of all, I think Claremont had an investment in his German characters that he didn't want us to hate, having positive relationships with Jewish and Romani people. That's something that yes. happens again and again. So you have Kurt yes. raised by Margali Sardish, Kurt's relationship with Amanda, Mystique's mm-hmm. apparent relationship with Margali Sardish. Kurt was a character who Claremont wanted to reveal as Jewish and was told no. So there was that. Uh, but it's something that he's always tried to do. And so I think that Mystique's lover being a Jewish woman who she met in the 19th century is something that's very, very 
interesting and something I would like to see teased out. It also adds a really powerful layer to a story that is otherwise extremely silly, which is Chris mm -hmm. Claremont's X-Men True Friends, where Kitty and Rachel go back in time to World War II, and Kitty wants to kill Hitler. And Destiny is the one who has to tell her, you can't do that. Because if you mm -hmm. do that, you're going to alter the timeline in such a way that things will become worse. And I need mm -hmm. you to trust me on this because it's my power. And that mm -hmm. creates the most astounding pathos if it's a Jew telling Kitty, yes. I have foreseen all the timelines and there is no way to prevent the Holocaust. Yes. That is, I think it's necessary because it's one of those things that the problem of superheroes is like, why didn't Superman stop 9-11 or whatever? You know, like there's stuff like that that's just impossible to deal with. And one of those things is like, okay, if mutants did exist, why don't they stop the Shoah? And so this Jewish woman saying, I've run the numbers, it's not possible, you know? Uh -huh. And and if we if you try to do that, you're going to make it worse. And I understand this yeah. is difficult to hear, but you have to listen to me. I think that that is just really much more powerful if she's a Jewish character. So that's something that I'm attached to. And I... If they ever do like a Marvel's Voices Jewish, I would love to write something about that. <laughs> that would be incredible. That would be incredible. I yeah. would love that. I mean, it it really matters to me. Um, that and Polaris as a patrilineal Jew who only discovers her heritage as an adult is something that mm -hmm. is someone who is, I was not raised religiously Jewish and I got into it as an adult. And that is so I really, and I'm also patrilineal, which is why I felt excluded as a young person. So Marvel, please let me write Polaris's late in life bat mitzvah because I, <laughs> I, I think it would be good. And I did. Uh... Here's the thing. Polaris, this is another one where it's just, it adds something. Polaris finds out she's Jewish the week before she's the sole survivor of the Genosian genocide. She finds out she's Magneto's daughter, goes to confront him about it, and Genosha happens all around her at that moment before she can talk to him about it. Yeah, you're right. Like, come on. And there are so many things like that that are just... They're just there. They're just waiting. there. They're in the text. Like whether they, or not it's intended at all, which I don't think it was in this case, that was there. Like I yeah. sincerely doubt Chuck Austin was thinking about that. You know what I'm no. saying? But like- No, Chuck Austin was too busy thinking about angel fucking teenagers. Right, like, you know, <laughs> no disrespect, Chuck. I'm still open invitation. Andy Gazakanian featuring Chuck Austin. Anytime you want to do it, email <laughs> cerebrocast.gmail.com. We will have fun, I promise. I do- honestly love that run of comics as much as I make fun of it because it's, it's listen I this is we talked about this we yeah. make fun of the things that we, we make love. fun of the things that we love and I, I would take I make a, fun of Chuck Austin but I have his entire running train so do I and I would take it over a lot of really boring X-Men comics that yes. I like less even though like I hate the Draco for destiny related reasons so because <laughs> I want destiny to be Kurt's mother desperately that's like yes. important to me. I think that yes. Destiny and Mystique being his biological parents is important to the story of him being lost to them and the story yes. of what that does to their relationship. Yes. I think it's important. And it's important for the, the way that Claremont specifically set up the interpersonal dynamics between Destiny, Mystique, Nightcrawler, and Rogue. Whether or not they are Kurt's biological parents, Rogue is the child she raised with Irene. Yes. And that is just different. Because we'll learn, now this is all retcons much later after Claremont, but we'll learn that Raven and Irene both had many children with other people over the years and that presumably they were on again, off again, or they had an open relationship. I tend to think mm -hmm. that Irene knew that Raven was just not a monogamous kind of 
person really and that was right. that she was okay with that right. especially as she got physically older and older i think she was yes. like i want you to have fun and go you know enjoy yourself you're forever young and i love you and i know you love me and it's fine that's my read on their relationship yes yeah um but i also think that I mean, the the really interesting thing is I what I had trouble with, I've always bought Raven as like a bisexual or pansexual or whatever character because she is above the thought of gender. Like, it's just not something that exists to her. That's certainly how Claremont considers yes. her as a character. Gender, I hardly know her. Yeah, like, I mean, we don't, <laughs> like, and what was her assigned gender at birth? We have no idea. And <laughs> she might not even remember. It's like one of those things yeah. where that's just, it's not something she thinks about in a human way in, a, in, in terms of our constructions of it. Destiny, I have always read as a lesbian. And so it was hard for me to figure out how I felt about like Trevor Chase or like other characters who it seemed were descended from her in the 90s, biologically descended. My read on it now, because I think actually that Mike Carey fixed this with Blindfold, because once it's established that Blindfold is her great-great-granddaughter, now we can say Irene knew they would need a precog after she was dead. So she made sure that her precognitive bloodline continued into that. Like, like now you can set it up as like a long game thing. And yes. for all we know, she went to a sperm bank. Like it doesn't have to be. Yes. And it's, it's doubly reinforced now by Krakoa because yes. of the. the she always knew of, that this would yes. come. Yes. So she, she knew that these events were coming and she knew that they would need mutants who could do what she does. Yes, exactly. And then the yeah. fact that I also think like she would even know <clears throat> that Ruth was going to die and would also know mm -hmm. that they wouldn't bring her back and would probably also know that might agitate people to start thinking, Irene's not back, Ruth's not back, like maybe people will put it together. We don't know. The point is she is planning on such a long game scale that now I think it smooths over some of the weirdness about her sexuality that happens mm -hmm. because... Claremont wasn't allowed to say this woman is a lesbian yes. in the 80s. Yes. And that's what's exciting is to see that. I mean, today in his interviews about Marauders with AIPT, Steve Orlando referred to Tempo as a lesbian. I have talked to him about that character. I know Steve, we work together. I know Steve really well. We're friends. Mm -hmm. We were friends before we worked together. He was like, well, she's been a lesbian since Mike Carey did it like 10 years ago. And the thing is, she has. But because it never said the word lesbian in the comic, because we never got like she, her dying words are like, please, I need the woman I love. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But yeah. because it's not like we are so scared after because it's it's years and years and years of arguing with our friends on the playground about whether Mystique and Destiny are yes. gay. Yeah. And it's a weird, complicated thing, too, because like if you don't say the word, if you don't say lesbian, then someone can change it. Yeah, people go, oh, bisexual, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, you, you have, have to, to say it. You have to say it. You have to say this uh, character is gay. And, that's and it's not so frustrating to, because, you know, because in real life, yeah, in real life, we don't want to, like some of us are like, you know, we don't want to really obsess too much about labels. We don't want to make those right. too fixed on people. But in fiction, you have to. Right, because otherwise, like, here's the thing. I think every Chris Claremont woman is queer except Dazzler. Every other one, is queer. Dazzler, I, I've said this many times in the podcast, I think Dazzler would love to be bi, has tried a couple times, just can't get there, but is the biggest straight ally in the world. So here's my take on that. I agree with you, except Longshot is trans. Personal headcanon, but I have always read Longshot is trans. 
I would not be mad about that at all, obviously. <laughs> um, but I also think that if that is the case, then Allie was still attracted to him as a man. Oh, yeah. She no, would have thought he was cis. Absolutely. And then if anything that developed there, she would be like, wow, this is a learning experience or whatever. Like, yeah. here's the thing, I think Dazzler's game to explore. Oh, yeah. I just think oh, that yeah. she is fundamentally only attracted to men and it's been a problem for her her whole life. Like, particularly because she's attracted to the wrong men, if you look at her yes. solo. Like, it's just yes. not, if, you know. If Dazzler were in any kind of a long-term healthy relationship, she would absolutely be a part of that couple on dating sites that's always looking for a unicorn and is bi-curious. Yes, exactly. Because she like wants to kiss the girl, but not really do anything else. Or like she'll yes. touch a boob. You know what I mean? Yes. But like, yes. like Betsy went down <laughs> Allie so many times in the outback and Allie just like, could not. <laughs> She's like, that was really fun. And Betsy's like, do you want to do it again? She's like, I don't know. I was kind of drunk and like. It was yeah. fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm yeah. not saying you did anything wrong. I'm yeah. just saying, like, we were, you know, we were having champagne. Yeah. And I'm not. Long, long, shot, was, long shot was watching. And I liked yeah. him. I wanted <laughs> to put on a show for him. Exactly. Like, it's that vibe. But so, yeah. yeah, you have to say lesbian. Because when I referred to Tempo as a lesbian character on this show, back when I was stumping for her in the X-Men vote last year, people were like, well, that's not canonical. We just, it's implied she was in a relationship with a woman. I'm like, I don't care what's canonical. I'm going to say what I think. Rachel Summers mm -hmm. is a lesbian, whether or not the word lesbian has ever been said in a comic Rachel book. Summers, Rachel Summers is absolutely a lesbian. That character's a lesbian. Get over it. You know, like, yes. so, th and that's how I feel about it. But that's why it's so amazing to see a status quo in Marvel Comics at all, where even Tempo, a character who is not that important in the history of the X-Men, but I think will be now, they can say, I mean, it took years to say that Karma was a lesbian. The word lesbian mm -hmm. wasn't used until six years after Karma came out. Like, it, it's yep. the fact that we can just say it, the fact that Mystique and Destiny can be wives, the fact that they can be part of this variant cover month with famous couples of the Marvel Universe, that is mind-blowing. And I say yeah. this not to tell, you know, I don't want to be the old gay who's like, you kids don't know how good you have it. Like, stop complaining. Because I do think that I mean, it's always important to strive for more, obviously. I've, but, I've got a few years on you. I'll be the old gay. It's yeah, fine. I mean, just like, guys, you don't understand how good we have it. You just don't. To, to kind of, yeah, to kind of tie this back, when you were talking about in high school, and being outed and, yeah. and making the choice to own that and how you had, you were, you were in theater. And so like, uh, you kind I of made it my some... personality. I was like, I'll be the funny gay guy, right. like on Will and Grace and right. they'll like me, you know, that was and my see, approach that's the thing. to it. You, you had to be, you had to be creative. You had to be an actor and you had to be funny to distract from the fact that you were being gay, almost yes. to apologize. Yes, no, because, I had to be fun to be yes, around so yes. that it was okay to have a gay person at your party. And and people these days don't- And I still wasn't invited to the party, if I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> people these days, and I mean, like, I'm not, like, I don't, I, I hate using people these days, but people these days don't understand how much of a detriment that label was to you back then. It was an unbelievable weight to carry around. Yes. You were allowed to be gay, but, and this is not necessarily you specifically. No, but like one the, was, the, I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You were allowed to be gay, but you know, like my parents gave me the top and like, it's okay if you're gay. And then, you know, some comment about wanting grandchildren or some comments about something like that. And it's like. About AIDS. I mean, it was yeah. like, that's the other it's, thing is like the shadow of the AIDS crisis loomed so large in a way mm -hmm. that I think people in their 20s now don't quite understand. Intellectually may understand, but the primal feeling of it 
was, and that's part of why I recognized myself, I think, in these lesbian characters or these queer women characters, which we didn't, that's not what we called them then, but like, you know, these gay women in these comics, because I could recognize them. Like, we didn't have gay elders, is the thing. Mm -hmm. Men, we didn't have those. They yes. all died, except for like, you would know one or two who had not died, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But everybody knew some lesbians in their 40s or 50s, like your gym teacher or whatever. Like mm -hmm. there was always, I'm not saying my gym teacher, if you're listening, but you know, the, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to out retroactively. My gym teacher was not a lesbian, but you get what I'm saying. The band director was, yeah. and she was a real lifeline for me when mm -hmm. I was outed. She saw me, she understood what was going on with me and she would check in with me to make sure I was okay without saying yes. why she was doing it or saying I'm gay. Just yeah. happy. like she didn't say it because you couldn't yeah. say those things, especially as a teacher to a child. Right. And you couldn't. Yeah. Even like you couldn't risk it, not only because of the way that you would be punished professionally, but because there was a fear of even talking to each other. Yes. Because even and if particularly somebody... talking to young people, because the, yes. the meme of the time is that gays are recruiting, gays are predatory yes. against children specifically. Yes. So yes. people were afraid to mentor you because because the, the the culture wouldn't allow it. Yes. And so characters like this who were clearly in love and were clearly a same-sex couple mm -hmm. that were adults and were happy together. Mm -hmm. even if they were evil like mystique and destiny or like juggernaut and black tom they meant a lot to me because i was like look at that that's what i want and i think that hickman's run provided some really good context for that too because there's a bit in there early on about how the things you do while trying to survive in a world that hates you do not define you there's this thing about it's i think it's when they're talking about like amnesty for the villains coming for the villains Coca -Cola. yeah the condition of being oppressed means sometimes you are driven to things that you're not proud of or things that yes. you wouldn't have done if you had resources or wouldn't have done if you had the support system in place to emotionally support you. There are all yes. kinds of things that you could have avoided if the culture had held you. Yes. And things especially that I'm not going to, I'm not saying that I'm going to run out and become a super villain or anything, but <laughs> reading about characters like Destiny and Mystique and Juggernaut and Black Tom. When you are living in a society that has no place for you, and when you are living in a society that is not going to give you a way to win, no matter what, when you're playing a rigged game against yourself, I cannot fault people for throwing their hands up and saying, upending the table, my way. knock over yeah. the chess pieces. I mean, last week's episode was about Callisto. She was another character I found enormously liberating in the same way. Yeah. She was in love with Storm. I could tell. Mm -hmm. I picked it up. I knew what was going on. She yep. was in love with Storm. Storm had feelings for her, I thought, very evidently, that were complicated. Oh, yeah. But Callisto is someone who the world rejected, so she rejects all civil society. And she mm -hmm. creates something new. She creates a community for people like her who have been rejected. And, and I extrapolate this to, I mean, the, thing that, the things that Teeny Howard and Jonathan Hickman did with Apocalypse in this era are unbelievable because that is one of the most nasty villains in this franchise. Mm -hmm. But if yeah. you think about the context of who he is, what he's been trying to accomplish, what he's been trying to achieve on a macro scale of thousands of years, it starts to make sense. I said, mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what Kieran Gillen is going to do with Celine in Immortal X-Men, because I said in 
my big Celine extravaganza with Alex Abed Santos, which is one of the episodes I'm probably most proud of because it's truly ridiculous, but in a great, <laughs> great way. You know, the question of Celine is sort of the ultimate version of the question that Zeb Wells poses in Hellions about empath, which is, is empath a sociopath because he's a sociopath or is it that his mutant power without people around him to help him adjust his behavior given the way that people react? Is, like, is it just that the power did this to him? Is it, unre- is it unregulated mental illness? Exactly. And Celine yeah. is someone who from birth was required to kill other people to survive because of the nature of her mutation. And yes. she then lived for 17,000 years. It is impossible for her not to view human beings as insignificant because the first thing she did was get held up to her mother to drain out her mother's life force. Yes. There, is, there is nothing in the way that she was raised. She was raised before civilization. She doesn't yeah. have that. And what Krakoa provides for these characters is the opportunity to have what they've never had before and maybe be productive members of society, which is why I've come around on Irene coming back younger. Because much like the Somnus story that C. Orlando is telling, having these characters who were gay and were not allowed to be gay, finally be allowed to be gay, Yes. In the fighting time scale is really powerful. Irene deserves a life where she gets to be herself unapologetically and unequivocally. Yes. And she finally has that. Yes. And I think that's just unbelievably powerful. And I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. I think now might be a good time to jump into the Cerebro character file on Destiny. I will take you through her complete publication history from the Days of Future Past storyline on Kenny X-Men 141 in 1981, up through the events of Inferno leading into the upcoming era Destiny of X, named in her honor. Then we will come back for more with Nola Fow. We'll talk about our favorite Destiny storylines, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern, and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. X-Men, X-Men. Irene Adler, better known by the mutant name Destiny, is a relatively minor character in the X-Men franchise whose influences nevertheless loomed large despite a dearth of appearances and the fact that she was dead for 32 years of publication from 1989 to 2021. 
a powerful mutant precognitive born in the 19th century. Irene is the lover and partner in crime of Raven Darkhoom, the shapeshifting terrorist Mystique. Though due to homophobic censorship, their creator Chris Claremont was only able to sneak in veiled references to their romance. Irene and Raven raised an adopted daughter together, Rogue, and were intended by Claremont to be Nightcrawler's biological parents. For decades of publication after her death, Irene shaped events around the X-Men through notes and journals she had left behind before she was murdered. Under writer Jonathan Hickman, Destiny's achieved greater prominence in the franchise than ever before, explicitly described as Raven's wife, and reframed retroactively as the arch-nemesis of Moira McTaggart, the character central to Hickman's reimagining of the X-Men. Resurrected in the 2021 event Inferno, Hickman's swan song before departing the ex-office for now, Irene has assumed a leadership position on Krakoa's Quiet Council, and is set to play a central role in Kieran Gillen and Lucas Vernick's Immortal X-Men, part of the next era of X-Men comics, Destiny of X. Irene Adler was actually supposed to make her first appearance in 1979 in issue 25 of Chris Claremont's Ms. Marvel Ongoing, but the book was cancelled at issue 23. The story Cry Vengeance was finally printed in 1992, 13 years later, in the anthology title Marvel Superheroes. Here, Rogue has her fateful battle with Carol Danvers that leads to Rogue absorbing the heroine's powers and memories. In this story, Irene tells Raven she's foreseen that Ms. Marvel will one day cost their daughter Rogue her soul. Raven protests she will die before allowing Ms. Marvel to harm Rogue, and Rogue, overhearing her, decides to attack Carol Danvers herself to protect her mother. In this way, Irene's prophecy comes to pass, as Rogue's psyche becomes fractured when she absorbs Carol's. While Cry Vengeance was written first, in terms of chronological publication history, Irene makes her first appearance in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 141 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, the first half of the famous Days of Future Past storyline. The Brotherhood intends to assassinate anti-mutant Republican presidential candidate Senator Robert Kelly, with Irene tasked with carrying out the assassination via crossbow. While Irene's foresight would have enabled her to make the perfect shot, the Brotherhood is defeated by the X-Men due to the intervention of Kate Pride, a time-traveling future version of Kitty Pride who's temporarily possessed Kitty's body via chrono-skimming. As a temporal anomaly, Kate is able to disrupt Irene's senses, phasing through her at the critical moment and throwing off her aim. Senator Kelly is rescued, and only Raven manages to escape arrest. The failure of the assassination attempt prevents Earth-616 from succumbing to Kate's dystopian future. Later that year, the rest of the cancelled story from Ms. Marvel plays out in Avengers Annual No. 10, where Rogue uses the power she stole from Carol Danvers in an attempt to help Raven free the captured Brotherhood members. They do not succeed. They next appear in a story by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema over in the pages of Rom the Space Knight, a character you do not need to worry about because Marvel no longer owns him. Good luck ever reading this story through legal means. Raven and Rogue manage to break out Irene and christen themselves the Sisterhood until such time as they can rescue the male members of the Brotherhood from prison. In this story, Irene objects to Raven teaming up with the evil aliens called the Dire Wraiths because that's very obviously a bad idea. When Irene foresees in particular that this specific Wraith intends to enslave mutant women as breeding stock, Raven betrays him and sides with Rom. The Sisterhood next appears a few months later in the Dazzler ongoing by Danny Fingeroth and Frank Springer, where they target Warren Worthington III, aka Angel, the only X-Man who has come out publicly as a mutant. Warren at this time is dating Dazzler, who kicks the Sisterhood's asses, leading to long-term tension with Rogue in the future. In 1983's Uncanny X-Men 170, Irene finds her precognitive sight strangely occluded. She suddenly sees danger for Rogue, but upon discovering that the girl has run away from home, she's unable to see more. Raven speculates that Charles Xavier may be interfering with Irene's power somehow. Seven issues later, after Rogue has joined the X-Men, Raven schemes to reclaim her, believing Xavier has brainwashed her with his telepathy. 
Irene advises against it, but Raven ignores her and attacks anyway, having reunited the Brotherhood. It turns out Rogue left of her own volition, desperate for Xavier's help with the torment of Carol's psyche trapped in her head, and convinces Raven to leave her with the X-Men. In Uncanny X-Men 185, Raven is conflicted over whether to prevent Val Cooper and Henry Peter Gyrick from using a depowering gun designed by Forge to take away Rogue's mutant power. Irene insists that Rogue must make such decisions herself, but confesses she's unable to foresee which path would be better for the girl long term. In the end, Mystique tips off Storm about Rogue's whereabouts, and when Storm comes to Rogue's rescue, she is depowered in Rogue's place. In 1985's Uncanny X-Men 199, Raven makes a deal with Val Cooper to get the Brotherhood a full pardon in exchange for becoming government employees. Renaming themselves Freedom Force, they prove themselves to Val by apprehending Magneto and bringing him to trial. The following year, they turn up in X-Factor as the Mutant Massacre storyline ramps up. Tasked with apprehending rogue mutant teenager Rusty Collins, Freedom Force winds up in the Morlock Tunnels. There, Irene is able to foresee that they must leave immediately or be killed in the massacre. Irene's mostly a background character for a while, serving as a member of Freedom Force until the lead-up to the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants. Here, Irene foresees that the X-Men are going to die, and Rogue will die if she remains with them. When Rogue refuses to leave the X-Men, Freedom Force follows them to Dallas in an effort to arrest them. Irene is horrified when all future timelines cease to exist to her sight, as the cosmic being called the Adversary intends to end the world. Freedom Force and the X-Men team up to battle the Adversary's forces, but ultimately the X-Men and their friend Madeline Pryor must sacrifice their lives to seal him away with a spell cast by their ally Forge. Irene and Raven are devastated by the death of Rogue, for which Raven blames Forge. In fact, the X-Men and Pryor are immediately resurrected by the Omniversal Guardian Roma, but they keep this a secret from their friends and family in order to operate undercover. In New Mutant 65 by Louise Simonson and Brett Blevins, the New Mutant Magic, Colossus's sister, learns of Forge's role in the spell that killed the X-Men and travels to Dallas with the New Mutants, intent on killing him. Irene defends Forge as his survival is necessary to the future. She then foresees elements of the Inferno that will spark later in the year. In a short story in Marvel Fanfare 40 by Chris Claremont and Craig Hamilton, we learn that Raven was aware she was sending Storm to be depowered in Rogue's place. Irene had foreseen that anyone who followed after Rogue would be the one to lose their powers, and is upset that Raven did not warn Storm of this. Raven counters that Irene herself had not moved to stop Raven, and Irene, with tears in her eyes, admits she was cowardly, because she loves Raven and Rogue. Declaring that the future is never certain, she wonders what the ramifications of their choice will be. Shapeshifting into a male form, Raven insists Irene let the future take care of itself, and spins her out onto the dance floor. Freedom Force are mostly government stooges for the next stretch of stories, and you should check out the Mystique episode if you want to get into the nitty-gritty. Their most fateful mission is in 1989's Uncanny X-Men 254, in which Val Cooper dispatches the team to Muir Island to help Forge battle the cyborg Reavers. Raven still hates Forge for his role in Rogue's apparent death, but Irene insists that one day Raven and Forge's futures will be intimately intertwined. Raven is skeptical. While Raven tasks Forge with protecting Irene, Irene sends him away, telling him that he must love Raven with all his heart. Irene then walks calmly to an encounter with Legion, the psychotic reality-warping son of Charles Xavier. Legion, frightened by what he sees in Irene's mind of his own potential futures, kills her with a psychic blast, just as Irene had foreseen. Despite Irene's instructions, Raven blames Forge for her death. We later learn that before she died, Irene had left a series of notes for Raven. One of them saves Raven's life when Val Cooper, possessed by the Shadow King, comes to kill her. Shortly after this story, Chris Claremont departs the X-Men franchise after 16 years as its chief architect. While she remains dead for the most part from 1989 to 2021, Irene continues to cast a large shadow over the franchise, usually through her influence on Raven or Rogue. In a backup story in the 1991 X-Factor Annual 6 by Peter David and Guang Yap, 
Reben scatters Irene's ashes at sea, following Irene's instructions to the letter and laughing when she gets pranked from beyond the grave, as the wind blows Irene's ashes back into her face and makes her sneeze. During the Age of Apocalypse reality warp in 1995, Destiny is one of the characters, alongside her adoptive son in this reality, Doug Ramsey, who are restored to life in the new timeline, and must sacrifice themselves to restore the original reality. In a Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries the following year, Irene appears in flashback working with Raven and Sabretooth during a time when Raven was living as the Mossad operative Amichai Benvenisti. In the present, a young boy named Trevor Chase, introduced in the Howard Mackey run on X Factor in 1997, is heavily implied to be Irene's grandson, and Raven feels compelled to protect him. Around the same time, in X-Force Minus One, written by John Francis Moore, a flashback to Jimmy Proudstar's childhood shows him having his fortune read by Irene, who at that time was working in a traveling carnival as the fortune teller Madame Destiny. Irene foresaw the future death of the X-Man Thunderbird, Jimmy's older brother, but couldn't bring herself to tell Jimmy what she had seen. Raven was bemused at Irene lying to young Jimmy, who departed the tent believing her a fraud. Irene, despairing at the tragic future she saw lying in wait for the boy, told Raven her foresight was sometimes a terrible burden. They decided to leave the carnival and make their living some other way. In Chris Claremont's 1999 miniseries X-Men True Friends, a time-traveling Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers encounter Raven and Irene in 1936, when they're working closely with Logan, the future X-Men Wolverine. Kitty wants to assassinate Adolf Hitler in the past in an effort to avert World War II and the Holocaust, but Irene convinces her that altering the timeline in this way is too dangerous. That same year, Alan Davis and Terry Cavanaugh write a story in the lead-up to the franchise-wide event The Twelve, in which Kitty discovers a journal written by Irene and addressed to Kitty. It provides Kitty with information on the crisis to come. In 2001, Fabian Niciesa writes a miniseries called X-Men Forever that is pretty neat, but also extremely, extremely confusing. It involves a lot of time travel, and we all know I am too gay to understand time travel. I'll try my best to explain the Destiny-related parts. First, in the present, the time-traveling sentient spaceship man Prosh, do not worry about it, impersonates Irene to approach a member of Senator Kelly's new presidential campaign staff, a man named Holt Adler, who is actually Raven in a new cover identity. Later, when Prosh starts sending Raven and other characters jumping back in time, Raven confronts Legion on Muir Island about his murder of Irene. Legion wants Raven to kill him, to prevent him from causing things in his future that Irene revealed to him. But when Legion reveals Irene said it would be up to Raven whether he lived or died, Raven decides to spare him. She's then sent further back in time, arriving at the home in Mississippi she shared with Irene and a young rogue. Irene, immediately aware she's speaking to a raven from the future, gives her copies of genetic data compiled over decades by a Dr. Nathan Milbury, actually Mr. Sinister. After a further time jump into the past, Raven observes Irene working as chief archivist at the Black Womb Project in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where Sinister and his protege Amanda Mueller are brutally experimenting on mutant babies. Eventually, the time travelers witness the entire process of human evolution. Honestly, do not worry about this story. It only matters insofar as it retcons Irene into being part of the Black Womb Project. A few months later, Chris Claremont debuts his new series, Extreme X-Men, in which Irene's history is significantly expanded via retcon. It's here that we learn Irene was not, in fact, born blind, as earlier stories had suggested, but went blind after her power catalyzed. She wrote a series of prophetic diaries in a fugue state during the manifestation, and years later in the 1890s she approached Raven, who was working as a detective, for help deciphering the cryptic messages. In the present, Storm and Rogue break away from Xavier and take a new team of independent X-Men to trace the future of mutant kind, as foretold in these diaries of destiny. We learn that Irene prepared for this quest long before her death, leaving behind a secret inheritance for Rogue and even a new costume for Storm. Eventually, the quest to follow the diaries ends because Rogue contradicts them, meaning the timeline has apparently shifted. 
out of story, my understanding is this development came from an editorial directive to bring Extreme back closer to the rest of the franchise. In the 2009 to 2010 franchise-wide event Necrotia, Irene is one of many deceased mutants resurrected by the wicked immortal Selene, using a combination of dark magic and the transmode virus. Irene is forced to use her precognition to aid in Selene's schemes, but in the X-Men Legacy tie-in arc by Mike Carey and Clay Mann, she manages to escape to Muir Island, where she astral projects in an effort to contact Rogue about a vision she's foreseen. Instead, she reaches the precognitive teenage student Ruth Aldean, aka Blindfold, and informs Ruth of a baleful vision of the future. It turns out Irene and Ruth are both being manipulated by Proteus, who possesses Ruth and attacks the X-Men. After Proteus is defeated, Irene shares a loving moment of reunion with Rogue, then comforts Ruth, whom she implies is her great-granddaughter. As Necrotia ends with Selene's spell disrupted, Irene returns to the grave. Then comes 2011's Chaos War, and I implore you not to worry about Chaos War. Four years later, in the ongoing Wolverines, written by Charles Soule, Raven attempts to resurrect Irene, but it turns out Irene had manipulated her in an effort to resurrect Logan instead, because Irene knows Logan is important to the future. Logan's dead at this time. Don't worry about it right now. Raven is pissed, and neither of them end up resurrected. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Irene takes on new significance as the nemesis of Dr. Moira McTaggart, revealed in a retcon to be a secret mutant, Moira X, with the power to rewind the universe to her own birth each time she dies. Viewing her existence as a curse, Moira vows to cure a mutation, and in her third life she succeeds in synthesizing a means of permanently deactivating the X gene. She's attacked by Raven and Irene, who understand what she's trying to do, though her status as a temporal anomaly makes her invisible to Irene's mutant sight. Irene orders Moira to work for the benefit of mutantkind rather than against her own people, and, understanding it will rewind the timeline, has Pyro burn Moira alive to remember what happens to traitors. Irene tells Moira she will hunt her in any future life where Moira pursues the cure, and troubles Moira with the knowledge that she has only ten lives total, or eleven if she makes the right choice. In Moira's tenth life, the life we've been reading all along as Marvel's Earth 616, Moira's knowledge, gathered over a thousand years of different lifetimes, enables the creation of Krakoan resurrection and the establishment of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Moira has faked her own death with the use of a Shi'ar golem, and lurks beneath Krakoa in a no-space, a tumor in the island that the island itself cannot perceive. There she conspires with Xavier and Magneto in an effort to save the mutant race, which in her experience is always doomed but she insists that while they resurrect their fallen fellow mutants, precognitives must be excluded. Destiny must not be resurrected. Xavier and Magneto compel Raven to work with them by promising they will resurrect Irene, but they continue to deny her, even as Raven demands the return of her wife. We learn that long ago, Irene had warned Raven about Krakoa, and told her that if the men there would not resurrect her, Raven would have to burn the society to the ground. In 2021's Inferno, Hickman's final X-Men story for now, Raven resurrects Irene by hijacking the resurrection process herself. She nominates Irene to fill Apocalypse's vacant seat on the quiet council of Krakoa, and Irene wins the vote. They then conspire with Emma Frost, who has learned Moira's secrets, to depower and kill Moira in order to prevent her from resetting the timeline again. After using Forge's old depowering gun to turn Moira into a normal human, Irene and Raven are disgusted when Moira reveals that after all this time, she still wants to cure mutants. Now, freed from her cycle of rebirth, there's nothing stopping Moira from implementing her plan. Irene and Raven are prevented from killing Moira right then and there by Doug Ramsey, aka Cypher, who has forged a mysterious techno-organic bond with Krakoa. Moira escapes through a Krakoan gate, given only the merest of head starts by Doug. In the 2022 event, X Deaths of Wolverine, half of the lead-up to the new era to be called Destiny of X, Irene dispatches Raven to kill Moira once and for all. What comes next? I couldn't possibly tell you. But Irene probably could. X-Men, X-Men.
And we're back with Women Writing About Comics Editor-in-Chief Nola Fow, two-time Eisner Award winner, and generally a cool gal, in my opinion. Nola, how are you doing about an hour into our recording process? Maybe 90 minutes? Um, We've been here a while. <laughs> I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty solid. I still got some coffee with me, so I'm good. Excellent. I, I took my meds, so I'm on, I'm on the ball. There you go. That's the key. I would love to talk a little bit about the Destiny stories that we really love. I already covered in the Mystique episode at length the story in that X-Factor annual that Peter David did where Mystique scatters her ashes, which is a really great story. The funny thing was in that episode, we joked that like, this is a fun new twist on the character that she's like a prankster. And uh, it feels like Hickman really picked that up and ran with it because she is now fully trolling everyone around her on Krakoa at all times with her power, which I think is a great way to write the character. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. you'd have uh, to be exhausted by this power and by people asking you questions. I mean, do not ask me about comics ever, but she's like, do not ask me about the future ever, basically. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and do not try to do not try to talk down to me is another big thing of hers too. Right. Like, do you want me to tell you how it's going to go about the yeah. vote? To put her yeah. on the council. That's an iconic line for this character. Yes. The the scene with the cuckoos. Is God, a the scene we'll get with there. The cuckoos. We'll get there because that is so good. We will get there. <laughs> so Destiny debuts as part of Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in Uncanny X-Men 141, which is the first part of Days of Future Past. She is part of the Brotherhood that attempts to assassinate Senator Kelly. She is actually the one who is supposed to do it, which is kind of funny there's a question about that later because it is a little odd to give the blind woman the gun but you know she knows exactly where things are going to be right it's a crossbow which is a cool little thing for her to have also i don't know yeah. there's something we don't see a crossbow very often in a superhero comic so it feels very well, mystical yeah and it comes from a time when there was a lot of moralization about guns in general yes. and so it's really interesting to see to see a crossbow both as a way to kind of subvert that moralization and as a reminder that like before guns, there were still ways to kill people at range. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, that doesn't go well. They get <laughs> arrested. She gets disrupted by, so Kate Pride in Days of Future Past takes over young Kitty Pride's body and phases through Irene at just the right moment to throw her off and Irene misses. And that's what averts the days of future past future. Later, because Claremont wants to use Rachel, it turns out that days of future past is actually the future of Earth 811. And while that was now averted on Earth 616, that timeline continues to persist. But at the time, it's like, okay, this is the big moment in history that is averted. And that is a nice thing that Hickman calls back to in Inferno when they're preparing to kill Moira in Inferno 4. Oh, spoilers for Inferno, by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, like, you know, pick it up. I know some of you are on Unlimited and are a little bit behind, but these issues are worth buying now, in my opinion. Yes, correct. Um, so when they are plotting to kill Moira and Cypher stops them, Irene says, oh, like, this is a moment with a lot of pot, hold on now. And she needs to start thinking about, like, she, she pauses Raven because suddenly spilling out from that moment are some really dramatically divergent futures. This moment with Robert Kelly and his attempted at assassination is clearly one of those moments. So it's a nice call back to her first story uh, mm -hmm. where she doesn't stop it. It's someone else stops her. 
they get arrested. Mystique and Rogue, their daughter, end up breaking her out. They have some adventures together. They're trying to get the male Brotherhood members out of jail where they're still stuck. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. really go very well. They tangle with Carol Danvers over in her book. They tangle with Dazzler briefly. In the pages of Rom the Space Knight, which you cannot read legally because Marvel no longer has the Rom license, they have an adventure with the Knights of Galador and the Dire Wraiths and all of that. That is where, as we talked about in the Rogue episode, Rogue absorbs Rom and, and feels what it's like to be a hero. And that actually sets her off on her path toward heroism, which is crazy because it's a comic that they now cannot reprint. But um, that's that's crazy. What are your favorite stories from this period with her from the 80s? I know that you said you came in in that sort of like 170 range, which is where she pops back up after being gone for a while. The Rom and Dazzler stories and the Carol story are between Days of Future Past and Uncanny 170, which is her first appearance back in the X-Men after Days of Future Past. Yeah, so um, so I'm, I'm introduced to 177. Mystique's fighting those duplicates in Mystique's Murder fighting the duplicates, yeah. And she's she's got this scenario where she's having to fight Rogue and Nightcrawler, who are both her kids in some fashion. She is fighting against Nightcrawler, and she hesitates. She can't kill him, even though, like, it's a duplicate. She just can't. And he knocks her out. And the next thing she's conscious of, uh, literally, like, there's a black panel, and it says, the next thing I'm aware of is a cool cloth on my forehead. Because this is narrated entirely from her perspective uh, up to this point. Which again, the fact that Claremont is like having the villains narrate, like he loves these characters. Yeah. Uh, And she awakes on the couch. Destiny is next to her with a towel on the forehead and they're both in bathrobes. Mm -hmm. And so if she's been unconscious this whole time, Destiny has clearly like brought her home and bathed her and changed her and, you know, just things that, that gal pals do. Sure. And so like these, it's, it's wild how much we pull from small scenes like this, because it is two panels of them on the couch before Arcade bursts in and they're having a, a caddy argument with, with Arcade over martinis. No, excuse me, over champagne. Yes. Um, and they go back, like Arcade sets off Mystique and Mystique starts yelling at Destiny because Mystique has never handled emotion well in her life. And it's it's wild how much we pull from little scenes like that. But like like you were saying about your your dad, he caught this. Yeah. It's so blatant and it's so obvious that he caught this. I feel like I'm I'm running off a of memory here, but I feel like there's also a scene of her and Mystique and like she's drinking tea. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just pulling up that. Yeah. I forget the issue number, but I, I saved the panel because I, w- I wanted to get to it. And um, it's, it's in this period. Mystique is holding her from behind, like with her arms wrapped around her and the phone is ringing. And Mystique says, do you see anything to worry about? And Irene says, to be honest, I'm not sure. And Raven says, whatever comes, old duffer, we'll face it together as always. Which is a funny thing, too, because you were talking about how people are afraid to write a precog this powerful, but Claremont never shied from it because for all that Destiny is written as so powerful, a precog, Claremont was always like, he always just had her going, yeah, I don't know. Do you see anything? Yeah, I don't know. We're at a nexus point. Anything could happen. And that is something that recurs throughout Claremont's writing of her. I really like, I mean, the thing that terrifies her most about Fall of the Mutants At first, they're trying to warn Rogue away because Irene has foreseen that every path in which Rogue stays with the X-Men, she will die. 
And mm-hmm. Raven tries to talk some sense into Rogue about that. And Rogue's like, I don't care. Mama, you can't tell me what to do, basically. But I love you. Bye. You know, and then as Freedom Force, because this is after Valerie Cooper has recruited the Brotherhood into Freedom Force. After Freedom Force. Oh, and, and by the way, again, reasons why I need Irene to be Jewish, because Freedom Force apprehending Magneto at the Holocaust Memorial is crazy. And I would love to see them talk about that. Uh, again, there's just a lot of stuff I'd love to do with this character <laughs> uh, yeah. if I if I ever got the chance. But once they're there, they're all in Dallas. Irene rips off her mask at one point and just starts screaming because the reason we understand the adversary is really bad news is that she can't see anything mm-hmm. because yep. he's going to end the world and there yes. is no future for her to see. And that is the scariest thing imaginable. So creating limitations for her, they do end up averting that because Roma interferes, because Roma brought Colossus who wasn't supposed to be there mm-hmm. and altered the timeline. That wasn't a path that Irene yeah. saw because it took an otherworld being who was outside of the time stream twisting something to fix it. There's that. But then they do die, of course. Roma just then brings them back. So again, that's yes. also Roma twisting the, the, yes. the timeline. The other one that I really love is earlier than that, though, which is when Irene foresees that Rogue is going to lose her powers to Forge's gun. Again, this gun is really central to these characters, which is why it was cool to bring it back in Inferno. Basically, what Irene foresees is that Rogue will have her powers taken away unless they tell someone to go after her, in which case that person will be depowered instead. And there's an interesting conversation about that where they're alone together and Raven says, Rogue's power is the cause of all her misery. Might she not be better off without them? She could live a normal life. She'd have her chance at happiness. And Irene says, and of course, be free to return home to you. Mm -hmm. Raven says, is that so bad? I love her as my own daughter, Irene. Her place is with me. This is my opportunity to help in a way Xavier can't. Have you the mm-hmm. right to make such a decision without Rogue's knowledge or consent? She is a grown woman, Raven, well able to take responsibility for her own life. The choice must be hers. And Raven yes. says, you're the precog, Destiny. Then Raven makes the choice to send Storm after her, and Storm is depowered in Rogue's place. And that leads to a great scene where Irene, she's in a cool little beret. She has like sunglasses on, little cat eye sunglasses that you can see mm-hmm. Raven reflected in. It's like a cool bit. Um, yeah. And she says, wheels within celestial wheels, Raven, by saving Rogue today, we may condemn her tomorrow. By condemning Storm, we may doom the X-Men and thereby save the world. And then Raven says, worse fates, worse outcomes. Can you tell for sure? And Irene says, nothing is certain until it happens. Mm-hmm. Raven says, then let the future take care of itself. It's um, Uncanny, which issue is that? I think actually it's a Marvel fanfare, isn't it? It's like Marvel fanfare 40, I want to say. It's really, it's really beautiful. And Irene's outfit is just great. So she says, before the conversation is related, she confronts Raven about it. She's like, Raven, did you warn Storm in my prescient vision that whoever goes to Rogue's aid will suffer the fate meant for her? And <laughs> Raven's, because like Storm has gone. She's like, did you tell Storm that what would happen to her if she went? And Raven mm-hmm. says, don't be absurd, Irene. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And 
Irene says, Raven. And Raven says, this was a perfect opportunity to both save my daughter and cripple my foremost enemies. How could you have expected me to pass it by? And yes. that is the critical moment. Because after that, everything Irene says to Raven about the future is calculated. Yes. Every single time. It's now about maneuvering Raven, who is a speeding bullet that you cannot control, Mm-hmm. to be pointed at the right targets. That's why yes. she tells her, you should be nice to Forge, you're going to love him someday, because she needs the Steak and Forge to have a close enough relationship that one day on Krakoa, Forge will give her what she needs. Yes, the relationship dynamics of that are, are so interesting to me because it puts Destiny in this, almost in this role of caretaker for Mystique. Yes. And if we're talking like, about mental illness again, like Mystique yes. is someone, and this is something they, they do retcon to try and explain her wackier behavior in the aunts. They say every time she shifts, her brain chemistry gets jumbled up. And that's part of why she's so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, then it is part of her mutant power, right? Like they end up stabilizing it. But the idea right. that her mental state, her brain chemistry is always in flux. Irene does become a caretaker for her just as Raven is a caretaker for Irene because she's blind. Like they are both disabled in different ways. Irene is physically disabled. Raven is mentally disabled. And they are working together to better the future for mutant kind is Irene's feeling. But in in Raven's mind, to better our own lives. But that's why... Irene knows she has to position any advice or any request she makes of Raven as something that will benefit Raven. For example, I mentioned earlier the Charles Soule Wolverine story, which I had totally forgotten about until I revisited it for the Laura Kinney episode. In that, the whole twist is that Mystique has been playing them all to try and resurrect Irene. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out in another twist that Irene wants her to resurrect Logan and conspired the whole thing together to resurrect Logan rather than herself because she knows Logan is important to the future. And Raven is so pissed that she's like, well, then neither of them are coming back and storms off, basically. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's a great example of the push and pull in their relationship. Irene yeah. can never be 100% honest with Raven because she knows that Raven can't really be trusted with the full responsibility of knowledge of the future. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the temperament for it. Yes, which, which then creates a weird dichotomy where like, she knows that she cannot be 100% honest with her partner. Right. And so like, this really mirrors the way, that, the way that queer people will seek out other queer people, the way that neurodivergent people will seek out other neurodivergent people, the way that people with mental illness will seek out other people with mental illness. Absolutely. And the way that they will form relationships based on mutual support. And how still sometimes those relationships won't be as, like won't be the healthiest thing in the world, but it's people doing the best they can with a system that has generally not done well in supporting them. These kind of things are so, so nuanced and it's so need to see to see that modeled here and especially with such a dearth of panel time for Irene especially yeah Irene only has like 20 something appearances before she dies mm-hmm. in uncanny 255 and then is dead as we said for 32 years mm-hmm. she will appear in flashback or she gets resurrected occasionally in stories like Necrotia or chaos war but for the most part She's dead. She looms so large over the entire franchise 
because Claremont does so much effective work with her before killing her off. And he kills Mm -hmm. her off for a very specific reason, which is that Mystique is having her heroic arc under Claremont, right? Where she creates Freedom Force in a cynical way. It's a Mm -hmm. way for her to get a pardon. She learns to like being a hero, much as Rogue did. And eventually- And much as Emma will do later. Exactly, and which Claremont didn't like, but you know, what are you gonna do? And eventually, instead of just playing Valerie Cooper, Mystique becomes Valerie Cooper, brainwashes herself into being Valerie Cooper to save Valerie's life at the potential cost of her own during all of the Muir Island saga stuff. That's Claremont's sort of endpoint with the characters. And I think that for Raven to fully give herself to heroism, the way that Claremont was positioning her, Irene had to die because it's Irene who leaves a note for Raven that Valerie is coming to kill her because of the Shadow King and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And that's when Raven makes the decision. And it's because Irene told her about this and was honest with her about this. Yes. And it's, it's absolutely one of those things where when Irene is around, Mystique feels comfortable letting Irene handle the responsibility aspects of things. Yes. She feels comfortable being the messy gay that she is. Right. And letting Irene be the adult. But Irene had to die so that Mystique could accept responsibility herself. As a gay Pisces, I relate to this. I don't know Raven's (laughs) sign, but she gives me a Scorpio vibe, right? Um, She does. Whereas like Irene would be a Virgo, I think, or maybe a Libra. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say all that just to say like, I like to think I'm pretty good at being a grown up and all of that. But I moved across the country to L.A. recently. My parents are in New York and you don't always realize how much you're relying on your family or your friends or whatever until you're suddenly in a new space. Like I had ants in my bathroom and I had to call the exterminator and I didn't know what to do because I didn't know my (laughs) landlord yet. And like this, that, and the other thing. And I had just lived with my parents for two years in the pandemic. And if there had been an ant problem, they would have handled it. And in many ways, (laughs) in many ways, Irene is parenting, caretaking, Mm -hmm. like we said earlier the only way that Mystique as a character can really grow is to take that caretaker away. The unfortunate thing is that we then lose the lesbian relationship. Now, in Claremont's view, he wasn't allowed to put the lesbian relationship actually on the page. So I doubt he was thinking of it that way. You know what I mean? Like in his world, on some level, it wasn't any more or less legit than the other many lesbian relationships he was writing into the comic that he also wasn't allowed to confirm. Like Storm and Yukio, like Kitty and Liliana, like Kitty and Rachel, like lots of other characters who definitely were in a relationship, but we never said it. Well, and also this is a time before the website Women in Refrigerators existed. Certainly. This is a time before barrier gaze was a trope that was talked about. I mean, like yeah, certainly listen, there were people who talked about the killing of queer characters, but it wasn't codified this is over, as a trope. Right. This is a decade before Tara gets shot on Buffy. Over a decade. Yeah. And yeah. when that happened, not to get into the just of it all, because I just really don't want to, but when that happened, the writers on that show were actually shocked by the response being so mm-hmm. negative. And it was because the trope by that point had been discussed enough Yes. In criticism and in popular culture that they were like, you can't just do this. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't occurred to the people writing the TV show. And that's in 2002, I want to say. Yeah. And even then, t- so, even then in TV, it would continue for another decade easily. because It still happens. But I yeah. mean, you know, it, it's one of those things that now at least people are aware of it. People are I mean, I, and I'm I'm not. Here's what I'll say. 
I don't like any restriction placed on a narrative because we're worried about a trope. Like, I don't like when a character is safe because they're a minority of any kind. Because I think that that makes the character less able to participate in story. If we can't kill gay people, now, in the Krakoa era, death is no longer the highest stake. But in all other narrative fiction that exists, generally speaking, death is the ultimate stake. And if we're saying you can't kill any queer characters, then we are saying queer characters can't be major characters in this narrative that has stakes to it, right? Because they have to be cosseted away from anything that might harm them. And I feel the same way about female characters, about characters Mm -hmm. of color. What you have to do is be mindful about these things. If you are taking one of the only lesbian characters off the board, it better be for a really great fucking story. Yeah. And this is a great story, you know? But I'm glad that 32 years later, we've got her back. Because that's also a great story. Yes. And that's the thing is that like, that's why it continues to be such a thing is because it's always, almost always the only gay character in a story that gets killed. Yes. And if they're not around otherwise, then you you're killing off the only source of representation. So like, really the solution is make more of them gay, give us more gays, and then you could kill some. We'll let you kill a few as a treat. Right. Well, I mean, you know, that's but that's the thing is I want us to get to a place where there are enough because I understand the hunger for representation. And we, mm-hmm. we talked about it at the beginning of yes. the episode. I also think that that is a very basic yes. thing. And yeah. I don't think like I would rather have fewer of them who are written well than have lots of them who don't matter. You know what yes. I'm saying? So and it's it's like the specific verbiage of, of tolerance. Like I want to yes. be more than tolerated. I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be a participant in this narrative. Yes. Yeah. I, I want here. to be a subject rather than an yeah. object, you know? Yes. And I think that this is a good example of a time when, yes, it's the trope, but I think that it was done mm-hmm. well. And I similarly think oh, absolutely. that the way Hickman, I know that some people initially when like when it was like they won't give her her wife back, there were people who were like this, you know, tortured lesbian trope. Is, and I, I saw that criticism a few times and I get that. I get that completely. But I also was struck by the fact, as we mentioned earlier, that it was the first time this relationship has the subjectivity in that way, mm-hmm. besides that annual where she scatters Destiny's ashes. But even then, they couldn't say, this is my lover. So mm-hmm. the fact is, yeah, they were suffering the way that every other couple in a comic has suffered, has been allowed to suffer as the protagonist of a story. More so, because they weren't even allowed to talk about it. And now they have that. They're allowed to have that. I think that's incredible. So I don't mind if terrible things happen to them because it's their story. That's what matters to me. You heard it here, folks. Connor, I want lesbians to die. Yeah, right. Now, well, listen, one of my favorite favorite books of the last 20 years is The Traitor Baruch Cormorant by my friend Seth. Oh, God. I I just started that. So don't spoil it for me. I won't spoil it. I'm just going to say lots of bad stuff happens to lesbians in that book. It is, I think, one of the best books ever. And I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to hear what you think when you finish it. I, I think okay. that I think is one of the finest debut novels of the 21st century. And there are two more now. So, you know, get on it. I will absolutely let you know. If you I haven't finish. heard them, people listening, if you like lesbian spies in a secondary pseudo fantasy world, it's a good time. And, and the evils of colonialism. It's just great. It's just great. Seth made me care about accounting. You can't understand <laughs> how hard it is to make me care about accounting, but accounting is Barra's superpower. Anyway, one Freedom Force scene I wanted to mention before we move on from that 80s period is I love the bit in New Mutant 65 
she's talking to Forge. Ilyana has gone to kill Forge because he was responsible in her view for what happened to her brother in Fall of the Mutants and to all of their friends. Mm -hmm. uh, but so they're fighting new mutants or whatever. And Sunspot brings a whole thing crashing down on them and says, learn from this freedom force, attack Sunspot at your peril. And Forge says, couldn't you have predicted and prevented that destiny or has magic's mischief muddled your ability to foresee even that simple act? And Irene, <laughs> who's not wearing her mask here, notably, and is just like looking like the Crypt Keeper or like um, the old hag from the Crypt Keeper stuff. Like it's, she's drawn in a very cartoony kind of pointy way, grinning having a great time. And she says, no, and as time passes and we confront them, the fog begins to lift. I saw the blow coming and chose not to stop it. Those bricks won't hurt Stonewall, which by the way, another member of the Freedom Force is called Stonewall. So just, you know, come on guys. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Claremont was hanging out in Lower Manhattan and knew exactly and I mean, what he was doing with that. Um, and I mean, Blob and Pyro, like the code Blob in there too. Pyro and Avalanche. Yeah. All of them, they're all gay. All of them. All of them. Because it's Blob and Unis and Pyro and Avalanche are also definitely couples. It's like, they're all mm -hmm. fucking gay. But anyway, those bricks won't hurt Stonewall, nor Avalanche through his armor, or affect the outcome of this fight. But Spiral's humiliation is balm to my soul. I find her <laughs> totally insufferable. I just think that's so funny that she's like, no, I just let my team get their shit rocked because I love when Spiral gets knocked on her ass. She <laughs> drives me fucking crazy. I, I love it. hate her. I love it. That is great. And that is another case where Destiny protects Forge and saves Forge's life. She tells Ilyana that she can't kill Forge. And there was all of this stuff where it's like, what will it be? What is the thing? And so I, again, love that Hickman tied Forge and his inventions into Inferno that way. Yes. Well, and there's a thing specifically about, this is this is getting away from Destiny a little bit, but there's a thing specifically about this era of mutant books, X-Men, New Mutants, and all of that. And it's the way that characters have interpersonal relationships that are completely unrelated to the plot at large. And there was a dimensionality to it that I think was not present in a lot of other superhero comics of the time. Right, the fact that these two villains have opinions of each other that like destiny can't stand that broad with the six arms like that's funny and it's just not something like, it's a humanity yeah. to these characters that you don't always get also yeah. spiral would be insufferable can you imagine if you had to hang out with spiral all day and you're a 120 year old woman who's really logical and really meticulous about yes. how you plan out everything because you're seeing the future all the time and spiral who is literally a walking engine of chaos is dancing yes. around them. she can't a, stop dancing she's always time dancing. traveling she won't shut up a time traveling dimension hopping sorceress it, that would be so annoying yeah she would be the worst she'd be the absolute most irritating person you could ever <laughs> encounter and so i love that moment of it's just like yeah that's Here's, that's a, and that's wheezy that story yeah, but yeah, like that wheezy, moment but... of just like yeah i mean and that also like that feels i've said many times that like it's interesting when these when these characters do get written by women for the first time with any character it was something that came up in the laura kinney episode for sure because that's a really stark difference mm -hmm. but oh, yeah. in this case there is something specifically about like destiny finds spiral really annoying that does feel like this woman writer has been exasperated with a female coworker before like it has it doesn't feel catty it just feels like exhausted in yeah. a way that feels who is, very <laughs> who is who is this child yeah, like, my shit? this girl is so annoying like it's just <laughs> a very funny it's just a very yeah. funny aside 
then Destiny dies because she walks to it because she knows that it's like the only way forward. It's the best possible path is the one where she dies. She's killed by Legion because Legion, yes. this is Legion's being influenced by the Shadow King on Muir Island. And Legion reads her mind and sees all of these potential variant futures for himself. And he panics and he kills her almost accidentally with a side blast, but like not, I mean, he has different personalities going on. So it's like, not accidental, but it's it's complicated. He's a complicated character. Mm-hmm. This obviously ties Legion and Mystique and Moira and Raven together in the narrative in, and Forge. Like all of those characters are sort of connected forever, which is why it makes a lot of sense that Irene and Raven and Moira became such a triptych once Hickman recontextualized Moira. But I would love to see like one of the things I would be eager to see in Legion of X coming up is a scene where David and Irene talk because I'm sure he regrets killing her. Yeah, I think I think part of him does, uh, absolutely. Well, Jack um, Wayne doesn't, but like, you know, but yes. David Haller does, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah absolutely. God, that Inferno is so good. It's just so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, because here's the thing. I have to really like something for me to have been okay with reusing the title Inferno, which is my favorite X-Men story. Mine ever. too. Mine too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are on the Maddie Pryor defense squad. I know this. Exactly. Yeah. My expectations for Inferno were through the roof. I was like, this and... needs to kill it. Cause it's mystique and destiny and you're calling it Inferno. This needs to be a perfect comic book. And lo and behold, it was a perfect yeah. comic book. That was really, it really was me, personally. Tommy, the Morlock got to be a spy. Yeah. That's yeah. like directed by Sage. I'm like, Jonathan, get out of my head. But don't which, stay in there forever, which, please. Which, by the way, just let Sage take over X-Force, please. Just uh, I, You might want to check out, I know you don't listen to that many podcasts, but you might want to check out the episode I just did with Ben Percy at the beginning of this month because we talk okay. about the Beast versus Sage of it all and it's only like two hours. Good. Um, I, I will do that around. because I, I have been waiting for Beast to get his come up since that book started. We dig real deep into that. It's The episode is ostensibly about Omega Red, but if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to that episode, we talk about Omega Red for probably a total of 10 to 15 minutes because there isn't a lot to Omega Red, which is why I was like, let's burn Omega Red on this episode so I can mostly just interview him about the plots he's doing because who's going to dig? Like, I guess if I could find a former KGB operative who might have insight into, but like, you know, in that case, I'd want to talk about like Darkstar, not Omega Red. Like, let's talk about a character mm-hmm. who has some plot. But anyway, he also loves Sage and something's building is the vibe yep. that I get. Okay. Because I'm a big Tessa head myself. I, uh, mm-hmm. The new, so actually, new merch has just gone up for those of you at home listening who are not following the Twitter account. Valentine Smith has done two more absolute banger designs. One is a Rachel Summers design called Too Gay to Understand Time Travel. The other one is a Tessa and Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw design that is called Tessa Analysis. Because... <laughs> That is one of my favorite recurring bits from the 80s, especially after the Celine episode where I was struck by how many things he forces Tessa to analyze at the drop of a hat. Like, Tessa, analyze <laughs> this right now. Thank you. She's tired. She doesn't want to analyze. She had a long day. She has a headache. It reminds me of that Think Geek shirt from back when Think Geek shirts were like a thing. Yeah, yeah. That was like, no, I will not fix your computer. But like, Tessa needs one that's just, no, I will not analyze your data. I will not data. analyze your data right now. I'm busy. 
but yeah, so those are up on tpublic.com slash user slash Cerebro. You can go to CerebroCast.com and get a link to the merch store. They're really great. Every time I give Valentine an idea, I literally just said like, I want a Tessa analysis t-shirt. And she's like, got it. It was like on it. <laughs> or like, I was like, this one I'm seeing, it's like, it's Rachel. She's concerned, hound uniform, but the red one from Excalibur. And it's somewhere it says, too gay to understand time travel. Valentine's like, got it. Came back like four weeks later with this incredible spread of like it's all these different moments of Rachel leading to Mother Iscani. It's so good, guys. It's <laughs> so really good. True. Like I just got a chance when to I look at it. When I saw it, I screamed. Yeah. I just got a chance to look at it and it's incredible. Um I, I was telling Connor this before we before we were back on on the air. I go feral when Valentine draws Rachel. And it is Valentine drawing Rachel not once but like four times. So if Marvel talent or editorial is listening there is no one you need to hire for a Knights of X variant cover. Like you need to hire yes. Valentine yes. M. Smith for a Knights of X variant cover. She draws Rachel and Betsy like nobody else I've ever seen. Her Betsy yes. is outstanding. Her Rachel is so ferocious. I just like one cover. She has like, a. I mean, yes. more if you want, but she has this really distinctive style. And I think it would be so cool for a variant. The yes. same way that Let Valentine Peach, do the same way that cover. Peach Momoko and Ryan Gonzalez and other people who have more distinctive styles have been doing really cool variants. Like, I just think mm-hmm. it would be super cool to see that. Um, Let her do it. Back to Destiny. Destiny's dead <laughs> for 30 years. Uh, there's not a ton to say because she's dead. She yeah. comes back into the narrative when Claremont, in a, in a big way, when Claremont returns for Extreme because he establishes that when she was young, she wrote these diaries when her power first manifested. So in the original stories back in the 80s, it's said that she was blind from birth. As with many Claremont details that get retconned later, he just doesn't care that much about his own continuity and he will dice it up and throw it around as much as he wants. What's retconned in Extreme is that she was not born blind. She went blind when her powers manifested when she was like a teenager. She wrote in the fugue state these diaries that map out the entire future of mutant kind. And then when she was done, she was blind but had her power. There's an extreme X-Men omnibus coming soon. There sure is. And guess what? Have I pre-ordered it? I sure have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm an insane person. But you know what? Sometimes you do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. So basically the MacGuffin of the Extreme X-Men is these diaries that they become aware of. Storm becomes aware of them and takes her new team. They split off from Xavier because in the wake of Onslaught, which was only a couple years ago at this point, Aurora does not trust Charles with knowledge of the future. That's not something she wants him to have. And it's never really explained why this schism happens, this really dramatic split. There's a six-month gap during the Revolution era. And after that, Tessa has become sage. My read on it is that once Storm found out what Charles had done to Sage, she no longer trusts him at all. But that's not something that we get explicated. It's just clear that Storm knows by the time of Extreme what Tessa was tasked with as a young woman by Charles Xavier. And I think Mm -hmm. that she's just like, okay, this is a real Machiavellian guy. Onslaught just happened. I'm not giving him these diaries. So she goes off with her team. This is because they took the flagship away from Claremont to give it to Grant Morrison. And so as a consolation prize, essentially, they created Extreme X-Men, but they let Chris Claremont take all of his favorite characters with him. So it's Storm, Sage, who he is developing at that point, 
Rogue, Gambit, Psylocke, Kitty pops Bishop. in and out. Bishop, who Claremont is obsessed with. Bishop is Claremont's favorite post-Claremont character. There are a couple, Bishop and Cecilia Reyes are the two that he didn't create that he really seems to love. He brings them in anytime he gets to write something, which tracks to me. Like Claremont was always really interested in diversifying his cast. And it seems to yes. me like he saw those two characters and was like, these are great additions that I didn't do. You know, like let's let's keep them around. Let's use them. Yes. She only exists as a ghost here, basically, but like we see that she left Rogue an inheritance. Like she's arranged all kinds of things with the knowledge of her own death many years ago so that the journey for the Extreme X-Men will be better. It's this quest for the diaries. The diaries, unfortunately, then become a problematic sort of MacGuffin, right? Because now, like the X-Men can't have knowledge of all mutant kind's future. So what does happen with the diaries eventually is that it's established that they're now wrong. Like something mm -hmm. happens that diverts the timeline that means they're no longer accurate to the timeline as it's proceeding. So they're no longer useful. And that I'm fine with because Irene wrote them down. So mm -hmm. she wrote down the most likely possible timeline, right. but you can't they once were, you've written they it were... down. They were correct as of the time she wrote them. Correct. But then the timeline is constantly shifting. And that yes. is something they've emphasized in the Krakoa era that I really like, particularly Jerry Duggan's Cable, emphasizing that like the future is constantly in flux. So mm -hmm. it's like, did Cable always know about Krakoa in earlier stories? I think no. I think that like teen Cable coming back reset certain things to like, I mm -hmm. think because the Ascani timeline as it initially existed was erased during the 12, right? So whatever future cable now comes from Krakoa existed, but I don't think it did in the 90s. The stuff we just have to kind of hand wave about time travel, right? And there's, there's also the thing that like whenever they do those really far future stories, there's always like, you know, not much of the history has survived. We only have bits and pieces. Like this was a big thing with Bishop's story too, where he comes from a future where a lot of the records are lost. That happens with a lot of time travel characters, and that's specifically a narrative out so that they don't, so that those characters aren't responsible for like, well, why didn't you tell us about this? Why right. didn't you tell us about this? And I just want to go back one sec because I skipped over Dream's End, which is the story that Claremont helped shape where Mystique kills Moira, which we now know is the golem, but all that. It is in part mm -hmm. because Mystique has seen in the diaries that this is what has to happen. Yes. And that I think now is really interesting. Like the fact that Mystique killing Moira is part of Destiny's diary. We see Moira reading those diaries in the lead up to Inferno. In fact, in the page before the beat drop of Inferno coming this fall, right? Like in yes. Hickman's, toward the end of Hickman's X-Men run. And what's really interesting is basically that's when Mystique at her total craziest tries to reconfigure the legacy virus to exterminate all humans. She kills Moira in the process of that and shoots Rogue when Rogue tries to stop her. Mm -hmm. And then when she's recuperating, basically because they, you know, they don't let Mystique die. She's in, in the hospital. She's talking to Gambit and Storm. And she decides, this is where we find out about the diary. She's like, this is um, like uncanny 388, 389, 390, somewhere in that range. She says, the future unfolds as her diaries foretell no matter what I do to prevent it. Now it's Xavier's turn. That's why I made sure he's received all the volumes in my possession. Let him learn what it's like to play Cassandra. And I love mm -hmm. that because only a year later, Cassandra Nova arrives. 
So yes. the idea of Xavier is, but Storm won't let him have them and takes them away from him immediately. And that's when she and Sage go off for extreme X-Men. But that's just a really cool, again, like Hickman, I resist the auteurist thing. And I think that people who are running around like, oh, the comics would be bad because Hickman's left or whatever. Like, that's crazy to me. I think that the team we have now is the, still the best team that has ever been assembled at this size on the X-Men franchise. Oh, um, absolutely. But one thing that Hickman is notoriously good at and astoundingly good at in a way that is rare is tying together shit like this that's like 40 different years of continuity. <laughs> like mm-hmm. That is yeah. really impressive. Morrison, who is similarly good at this kind of stuff, disregards continuity that they don't like. Yes. Hickman is like, no, we're going to make all this shit work. He's granted that, uh, you know, Moira and the legacy virus is a little awkward now. But one thing he said in that Jay and Miles interview was that the idea to make Moira mutant occurred to him because it would explain how Moira got the legacy virus. And he said, I realized that when that story was told in the nineties, the idea was we're going to humanize the mutants by showing a human catch this disease, but it never quite made sense to me. And now I was like, well, what if she was secretly a mutant the whole time? He's like, and the whole idea spun out of that. And that actually, I want to, just say is why I now, my current golem theory of Moira is that Moira did catch the legacy virus and they put her in suspended animation and that's when they replaced her with the golem and that she came out after Colossus had cured the legacy virus. That's what I think happened. I think she actually did get the disease. Yeah, the whole point of the retcon is so that she can catch the disease. Well, but I didn't realize that until Hickman said it. I thought like, because before that I was saying she must have backed out after Claremont's last arc where she nearly gets killed by Magneto and the Acolytes. She must have been like, this is getting too risky. I got to go underground. But now I think it's like 96, 97 after she gets the legacy virus. That scene too is really interesting to me because that's something that I've reread a bunch of times because, you know, X-Men number one. Volume yeah, two, number one. Right, yeah. And and his rage at Moira in the context of them having this plan for Krakoa uh-huh. and knowing all of this stuff. And like, fuck you, lady. It's so much better. Yeah. And it was already great, but now it's yeah. really great. Yeah. It's funny that Moira ties in with Destiny so much too, because um, I think it's Jay and Miles that like to refer to, to that era of Moira as uh, evil, sexy Moira. I call it slutty Moira on this yeah. show. Yeah. With yeah. The because of the shadow king. And the King's blood influence. sport in the arena. Right. <laughs> yes. Because the shadow king's fucking with her. Yeah. But at the time, and it's it's very much attributed to the shadow king, but also in the context of, of Hickman's characterization of her, she was always a little bit evil. Like, yes. This was always there. And the thing is, it's always been there with the character. And I cannot wait to see what's going to happen in Excess of Wolverine. I just like, I'm so. I'm just so hyped for Destiny of X, guys. I can't uh, express. So I know that you just said X Deaths of Wolverine, but yeah. I heard it for a second as Excessive Wolverine, and what a perfect title. Oh, yeah, no. Excessive Wolverine is more like 1992 to 2010, I would say. I mean, I mean, you could actually throw that on a logo, though, like X-Cessive Wolverine. Wolverine, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that brings us mostly up to the present. Hickman really revived this character literally but also in the franchise by giving her such a prominent role in house of x that flashback it's the centerpiece of the big bang issue of moira's past lives and that whole retcon Mm -hmm. the really evocative scene is the scene where destiny has her burned alive to teach her Mm -hmm. a valuable lesson 
and one that she carried with her for a thousand years. So it it worked. Yeah. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> it sure did. And yet again, I've said this in many episodes before, but people jump around on this podcast. It's another stroke of genius on Hickman's part to identify that Moira means destiny in ancient Greek. It means fate. The Moirai are the three fates. So yes. they are the same character in a lot of ways, yes. except that where destiny says the future is never certain until it happens, Moira is a fatalist who believes that she cannot actually avert what's going to happen. Yes, and so there, we always there are lose. Two, there are two fates who approach the question of fate in a very different way. And I'm fascinated to see where it will go. Does, in the future. does that make Mystique the third? Well, the third one is death, right? Atropos. Okay. And Raven Mis- is a, like, you could kind of, but I, I don't know. I don't, I might hear, I my, mean, I'm okay. more inclined to read it. I'm more inclined to read it as that Ruth blindfold is maybe the third in that set and that she would be like Clotho, the young one. I get that. I get that. But consider that ravens are associated with death. Well, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And consider that Mystique literally walks around with a skull on On her head. head, Yeah. Which apparently is part of her actual body as of House of X, Powers of Ted. Yeah, I mean, she comes out of the egg with that thing in her forehead. I think maybe she, (laughs) uh, I think maybe my my read on that, because she also has it whenever she gets knocked out and like unshapeshifts. I think Mm -hmm. that the form that is Mystique's base form that she has all the time is a form she's chosen. And that yes. the skull is part of that form. That's I am I deeply, I am just deeply entertained by the by idea by the fact that it's of part the, of, her. of her. Yeah, of her mutation, just creating a tiny skull on her yeah. forehead. For why not <laughs> for drama? But no, I mean, if I were to think, if I were to map them onto the fates, and like, it's not necessarily a maiden mother crone thing. That's like Robert Graves editorializing years later. But certainly in like Norse mythology, it is kind of a maiden mother crone thing. Like the fates, the Norns. There, if you looked at it, because blindfold's coming back, Ruth is coming back for Legion of X, and I'm hoping that. Like we'll get to see more there, but you know, that, that could work. Or if you want it to be these three women, which I think also works, then you throw the age part out and it's more the three fates from Greek mythology, which is Clotho who spins the thread of life, Lachesis who apportions it and measures good luck and bad luck. And then Atropos mm-hmm. who cuts it when you're supposed to die. I would say that Irene is the one who wrote the diaries, right? Like she is mm-hmm. the one who creates the fate Moira is the one who decides how things will go. And then Raven is the one who puts a stop to it. She's certainly the one who cuts. And she's the one who kills Moira X in Inferno. Yes. Yeah. The death of Moira X. I, when it fades to white and says, and then, just like it did in Hawksbox each time she died, that <sighs> knocked me on my fucking ass. Yeah. Yeah. God, that's good comics. Jonathan Hickman is a good fucking writer. I know everybody yeah, knows is. that, but man, he's good. Yeah, he really is. Are there any other Destiny stories in particular you'd like to talk about before we get into questions? We got a lot of great questions. I mean, there aren't a lot of Destiny stories to begin with. You know, we talked about that. There's only there's only like 20 before she dies, and there's only like 60 total. So I guess the next great Destiny story that I'm interested in talking about hasn't happened yet because I'm absolutely ravenous for a little X-Men. Yeah. That- that cover with like the the almost Last Supper style table with all of them. Around. It's literally the Last Supper. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's they're even posed. Like I mean, you yeah. can identify who's which character. I am obsessed. Kieran Gillen writing Destiny. Period is a very exciting prospect. Yes. Uh, well, and Gillen coming back to X Men in a book with Sinister and after Sinister is 
so much of modern sinister is informed is by him. characterization. It's just Gillen. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. like Morrison with Emma Frost. Like Gillen just mm-hmm. redid that character, and now that's well, who the character yeah. is. But also, I think like this is a personal critical opinion, but I don't think that anyone has quite matched the tone correctly with Sinister since Gillen left him, because Sinister is campy, yes, but there is a genuine underlying menace to his camp under Gillen's run. Yeah, that is Gillen makes him scary. Yeah. And I think that Hellion, uh, Hellions was my favorite book of the last year. I loved Hellions, but the tone of it was more comedic with him. And mm-hmm. I think that, which I think was fine. And I think that that was necessary for the tone of that book. But I think that now that Hellions is over and we see just how much he screwed Kanon over, just how much he really devastated these people, as much as they yes. did grow because of each other, but not because yes. of him. I think that now is the moment to pull the curtain back a little bit, bring Gillen back and show, just remind us all, this is a really scary guy also. And I'm I'm very excited for him versus Destiny. I don't know how much is of that is going to well, play out, but... So the thing that's interesting to me about that is that Nisiesa retconned together a history between Destiny and Sinister in the 90s. Yes. They both worked on the Black Womb Project in Alamogordo with... Xavier's father and Juggernaut's father. It was Dr. Marco, Dr. Xavier, Mr. Sinister in his alias Nathan Milbury, and mm-hmm. Amanda Mueller, a character I am fascinated by who I'd also love to see go up against Destiny. Amanda Mueller has not achieved a full Zaladian's worth of appearances yet, so she cannot have a mm-hmm. super episode until such time as that <laughs> happens. But if anyone's <laughs> going to do it for me, like, come on, Karen, because Fabian just brought her back for an X-Men Legends one shot that was fun. Fantastic. It was so good. Irene was their archivist and because mm. she's not there. The rest of them are geneticists like working on they're experimenting on mutant babies. It's a really distressing thing. And for years, I was really troubled by that because I was like, I don't think Irene Adler would be involved in this project, particularly with my reading of her as a Jewish character. There was something distressing to me about her participating in these sort of Mengele style experiments mm-hmm. on infants. But now I like it because if you think about her as the archivist of like mutant kinds past and future, she was there because for whatever reason she knew she needed to be there. Like whatever she was doing at Alamogordo, for all we know, she created the circumstances by which Charles Xavier was born. You know what I mean? Like there are so many different butterfly effects that she could have been creating there. And that's now an opportunity for story and story between her and Milbury slash Essex, you know? Yeah. She could have known even then how important Sinister's cache of genetic samples was going to be. Was going to be. She could have known, I mean, she could have known that he was going to create Madeline Pryor and therefore create Cable, which therefore changes the entire timeline. Like there are so many things that we have to understand that even if she doesn't, what makes her a character you can use is that she's never 100% sure what's going to happen, but she has a very, very good idea and she's able to calculate probabilities. So I would her, love- Her hindsight is twenty twenty. Correct. And I would love to go back to Alamogordo, see what she and Amanda and Sinister were up to and see perhaps why a woman who is pretty moral most of the time would have- participated at all in that project. And I think it must be because there was a reason she had to be there. And it ties so much to what you were talking about earlier too, with your read of her as Jewish and talking to Kitty during that true friend stuff. 
Exactly. We have to let Hitler live. Similarly, yeah. we have to let Sinister carry out these experiments because otherwise it won't like that. Those moral calculus, like the Sophie's choice of that, literally, yes. speaking, is yes. very interesting to me. Sophie's choice, if people only know it as an expression, I actually had to tell someone this recently because they didn't know what it actually means. A Sophie's choice obviously is an impossible decision, but it comes from the book Sophie's Choice and then the movie starring Meryl Streep, for which she won the Oscar. Sophie's choice is that Sophie is a Jewish woman who's taken to Auschwitz with her two children and is asked which one she wants to keep mm -hmm. and spends the rest of her life feeling that she murdered one of her children by choosing one over the other. It's the impossible choice, but she makes it. She does. Mm -hmm. The moral thing to do as a mother would have been to say, I can't possibly choose, but then they would have killed them both. You know, like yes. they, to torture her, they let her pick. And mm -hmm. she spends the rest of her life obsessed with that. And I think that Irene is a similar character in that she has had to make many decisions that she knows are abhorrent because it's the only way to save as many people as she can. Yes. And that's why I'm so excited to see her in a leadership role in a time when mm -hmm. these are finally on top. And I know this is going to be yes. a tumultuous time. Every writer has said this is about to be a rough year for the mutants because you can't have them on top all the time, but they're in a position of power and subjectivity in the narrative in a way yes. that they never really have been before. Yes. And to have someone, like we've said, who is allowed to be herself in a way that she wasn't prior. And sacrifice so much to reach this yes. future. We know, above all, she plays a long game even better than Charles Xavier. She cares about mutants and mutant survival in a way that is indisputable and has always been. She is... She's the mother we need. She is. <laughs> I think that's a great time to get into the listener questions. So many of you yes. wrote in with great thoughts, and we are going to do a bunch of them. We can't get to them all. Sorry, but I am trying to keep these episodes under three hours if it kills me. Zach Jenkins writes, hey, Nola and Connor, in Days of Future Past, Destiny's the one who's going to assassinate Senator Kelly with a crossbow. I have a lot of questions about this decision. One, why Destiny when her wife, a master assassin, is right there? Two, why Destiny when she is legally blind and even if she can see the future, I don't know if that helps to aim a crossbow. Three, why Destiny with a crossbow when their hit squad includes people with abilities that seem much more efficient than a 7th century BC weapon? Essentially, why was their plan so bad? Thanks, Zach Jenkins. One, because when Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants attacks anyone, you expect Mystique to be the one leading the assassination. Yes. So if all eyes are on her, like having somebody else carry out the assassination is the smart tactical choice. Uh, Absolutely. Two, as to the question of why a blind person is using a crossbow, the text explicitly states that she can, she can see where he's going to be. She, she knows where he'll be standing. So she's anticipating yes. the moment. She, she knows the future moment at which she will hit him. So yes. <laughs> like, she can't like, aim it at him, but she can aim it at the place she knows he's going to be. Yes, yes. And because she so knows cool. the future. God, that's so cool. <laughs> and, and, the thing, and the thing about Destiny is that she admits when she doesn't know. When she yes. doesn't know the future, she admits it. So when she says something is certain, it is certain. That's the thing that's interesting about this character. She doesn't lie. And to go back to what we said about the separate yes. cuckoos, like I'm sure that she told them that she gives in Inferno, if you haven't read it yet, she gives the cuckoos a baleful prophecy. They're like, what do you see when you look at us? Like, you're, or, you know, they're they kind of cop an attitude with her, but not really enough for her to devastate their lives, which is what she then casually does. She says, I see, you know, yada, yada, yada. Five girls, two who will find love, three who won't, one who will be severed from the rest forever in other worlds. And it's just like, what? 
Sick. Right. And they're immediately like, well, which of us is it? Which, which of us, like, which, what's happening to who? And she's, and she immediately throws their own words back in their face. And she's like, you guys are all the same. How am I supposed to tell? How am I supposed to tell the difference between you? <laughs> it's so good. so good. That classic wit, destiny. But she doesn't lie is the thing. So yeah. that's true. How she frames it might not, like severed from the others forever in other worlds could mean a million different things, right? Mm -hmm. So like she's not telling them everything. She has told them just enough to make them want to get in her good graces so that they can yes. know more. And she did it notably one week before they became collectively the white queen of hellfire trading. Yes. So she now has those five girls very much interested in getting on her good side and she did it right before they achieved a huge yes. position of power in the Krakoan state. Yes. So to tie this back to the question, we know that she's a good shot because she is telling Senator She told Kelly us she could make the, the shot. Yeah, yeah, she tells Kelly, I'm going to hit you, which means she is. Yeah, she's going to. It's, it's that simple. The only thing that stops it is a time anomaly. Kate Pride, much like Moira, mm -hmm. is a time anomaly and something that Irene has trouble perceiving. Indeed. And... As to why a crossbow, even in the 80s, security around political officials was already starting to, to be a little more serious because there had been so many assassination attempts. Yeah. Was Reagan after this? After it, this though, that happens after this, but I'm saying like it yeah. was a clear and present yeah. threat. And so, yeah, it's not made of metal. It's like a wooden crossbow. Yeah. Like a president was assassinated. Was Kennedy the same year that X-Men came out? I think it was. 63, right? Yeah. The Kennedy assassination happens like a couple months into the publication of the X-Men. It's June right. 63, and then he dies in November 63. And you got to figure that this plot is 1981, so that was not that long ago back then. Well, and Bobby Kennedy, I think, is really indicative. Also, yeah, That was also. a huge moment. And, and so, so it's, one of this, it's one of these things where like people are cognizant of guns around political officials. I think if you're Chris Claremont, who really did like to logic out a situation sometimes more than you needed to because it's a superhero yeah. comic, he's thinking, well, how do they get the gun in? Oh, it's yes. a crossbow. Like, I think that yes. that is exactly what happened. Yes. It's also cool to give her a weapon of antiquity because she is the blind seer like Tiresias, yes. like all of these figures of classical yes. mythology. Yes, yes. And I'm sure Tiresias is a character that Claremont's obsessed with because Tiresias is the character who lives as a man and then lives as a woman. And then there's all of that stuff with like- Oh yeah, that sounds like, like- That's a character that Claremont would be really into. Yes. But also <laughs> like a, a crossbow is just visually interesting on a panel. Yeah, it's cool. It looks cool. It looks cool. That's why Buffy used so, one. It's fine, it's don't cool. worry about it. And it was made of wood. So that was helpful yeah. for vampires. Similarly, self for getting through a metal detector so you can just try to assassinate the president. Exactly. Tori Mast writes, hi there, Connor, an esteemed guest. First off, I want to say I've been loving the podcast. It's really reignited my passion for X-Men and comics in general. Now, on to my question about Destiny. Destiny's real name, Irene Adler, is shared with a character who briefly appears in Sherlock Holmes stories. Given her powers, I wonder why she wasn't named after a famous fortune teller. From what I know, Sherlock's version of Irene Adler had nothing to do with predicting the future. And after doing a bit of research, I found a few names that could have worked. Ursula Southale, Evangeline Adams, Marie Anne Lenormand, Catherine Monboissin. Of course, this might just be a case of the being a stickler, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Regards, Tori, Gay Art Burb on Twitter, and Tori Mast in the Discord server. This comes down to the fact that he wanted to make Mystique Sherlock Holmes. Yes. That's all. Yes. I mean, so, so canonically, Irene is that Irene Adler 
Uh, yes, she the is the Irene Adler of a scandal in Bohemia in yes. her 616. That is who yes. this character is. And Irene Adler and Sherlock Holmes are public domain characters, so you can do that. Yes. Raven Darkhuma is Sherlock Holmes in yes. the world of her 616. Presumably, Arthur Conan Doyle was inspired by Raven and Irene to write Scandal in Bohemia. Yes. In Scandal in Bohemia, Irene Adler is a Jewish American opera singer originally from New Jersey. Perhaps some details were changed to protect the real person. Who knows? The point is, that's who she is. And it's because Claremont wanted Sherlock Holmes to actually be a trans woman with blue skin. Because, yeah. Because, yeah. Wouldn't Why wouldn't you? I like it better. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and the other thing is that, um, like, you, you, you did name in your question a bunch of other notable figures, but none of them have quite the universal appeal that Irene Adler does. That is a Irene name Adler, people... yeah. It's a great name. It also is a name that has a classical edge to it. Irene uh -huh. is ancient Greek. And in fact, in early stories, it is written Irene mm -hmm. with an accent on it. Because in Austria, that is how you would pronounce it, like with a long E on the end, or like Irene. Yes. And German-speaking listeners, please don't write in. I'm sure I just fucked that up. But you get what I'm saying. Do you not know, explain accents to us ever. Yeah. And then Adler means eagle, which for a seer, like the eagle eyed yes, thing, yes. especially and, and for a blind seer, the idea of like eagle, an eagle eyed woman is interesting. Right. So yes. it has a lot of resonance to it, but she doesn't bear much resemblance, no, to the character from Scandal in Bohemia. We are just to assume that she inspired that character in some way. Uh, yes. Just as Sherlock Holmes is not the alias that. Mystique was using. She was Eric Raven when she was working as a detective in that period in a male presentation. Um, mm -hmm. Much like we were saying, the Krakoa era on some level came out of Hickman saying, I want to make Moira a mutant. Who's her opposite number? Her opposite number is Destiny. I got to bring Destiny back. What if there's no more death? That's how story often evolves. This is what if Mystique was Sherlock Holmes? Well, clearly, then this old woman who is her lover is Irene Adler. Mm -hmm. Like, that's great. You know, that's where yeah. it comes from. It's good stuff. Um, it's just good stuff. Cesar Castanha writes, hello, Connor and guest. A few questions regarding 616's most reliable precog. Should we have a young adult tie-in novel of the Destiny Diaries? I feel that I need this. Who would you have writing it? What celebrity gossip of the 20th or 21st century do you think is featured there? Did she have the scoop on Benifer getting back together? On another note, what is Irene's relationship with Cassandra Webb? Did they go to precog school together? Did they share notes on delivery and on the mise en of performative future telling? I feel that Irene would find Madame Webb's method to be a bit over the top and to lack her own signature subtlety. Irene's surprise factor makes a difference. You're watching a sunset with your wife and then you find out you might have to bring down a future mutant utopia. It's brutal and unexpected and that's how she works. Much love to the both of you and also to the pod, Cesar Castanha. I would love to see... I don't know about a YA thing. That's like outside my wheelhouse. But I would love to see, especially after the story that Teeny did in the Pride Anthology last year and the beautiful preview art from Immortal X-Men that Lucas Vernick has done of Raven and Irene in period garb. I would just love to see more stories about their past. I never mm -hmm. want a Mystique Origins where we find out details of Mystique's birth. I think it's really important to that character that we not know about her childhood or who she was before she became Mystique. Um, and Literally, that's like, it's it's her name. Preserve it's her, her name, mystique. right? Don't Wolverine Origins Mystique ever? Yes, in, in my opinion. 
And that's not just because of like the potential trans stuff there. Like if we're not going to get it on the page, let's keep it a possibility by not exploring it too much. But it's also just that she's more interesting by virtue of being mysterious. Yes. But I would love to see stories about her and Irene over the course of the entire 20th century. There's so Mm -hmm. much you can do. Oh, absolutely. It would be a great little anthology miniseries. Like there are so many things you could do with that of like lesbian Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler, but they're mutant terrorists. Like there's just so much you can do with it. I would really like to see it done Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix style where each issue is like, it's a four issue. And you do a time jump. A yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could it even have four different fantastic. people write it. Like there are so yes. many things that you could do that would be really cool. Again, I also, um, like you, YA novels are not really my thing, but I was just struck with the idea of Irene Adler in her supreme troll phase, writing a tell-all book where she just spoils the endings of like every reality show <laughs> for like the next 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I think that in terms of celebrity gossip, there's probably stuff about mutant celebrities. So like she knew yeah. what was going to happen with Dazzler. I bet that's in the oh, diary. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. She knows about Warren and Monet and X-Corp and all of that. Like that would definitely have been in the diaries. Yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think she kept she kept it to mutant things, I think. Mm-hmm. So unless Benefer turned out to be mutants, which, you know, stranger things have happened, I think uh, I think they probably were not included. Right. Fox Car writes, Dear Connor and Nola, sometime Christmas evening, I was like, I need to get a question for the Destiny episode before Connor announces it. And then I thought he was sure saving that for Pride Month. And then you announced the Destiny episode. This is how my premonitions usually go. I love Cerebro and I'm excited to hear this episode of my unproblematic fave who has never done anything wrong. I would, have sa- <laughs> I would have saved Irene for Pride Month, but Here's the thing. Sometimes a character makes more sense to do. Like, I don't want to say that the gay characters can only happen during Pride Month. So I am going to run out eventually for Pride Month. But you know what? Like, it'll be fine. It's a thing that I do until I can't do it anymore. But look, all of the X-Men are gay except Death. Some of the ones I've scheduled in June are not canonically gay because guess what? They're fucking gay. So it's fine. We're going to make it work. But the point is, I wanted to do Irene because... I wanted to do this episode specifically between Inferno and Destiny of X. I thought that it was important to take stock of this character before Immortal X-Men starts and to make predictions, I guess, on some level, right? Because that's what Mm -hmm. she's all about. So uh, Fox continues. Do you think Destiny will have other precogs resurrected? Is this a conversation we even need to have now that Wanda's installed that waiting room? Having more foresight seems like a good idea for a developing nation constantly beset by crisis. The last time Destiny was alive during Necrotia, she told Blindfold that two precogs standing next to each other cancel each other out, and then made one of the only incorrect predictions we've ever seen from her, that Blindfold would never have to deal with her deceased brother. Speaking of dead precogs, do you think Larry Trask has any chance of moving up the resurrection protocols? With Cassandra Nova around and not being blamed for the genocide in Genosha, it doesn't seem likely. More importantly, in the Grand Krakoan tradition, who should be Mystique in Destiny's third? My instinct is bling, hot, forward-thinking, potentially into distant mommy figures, given the tidbits of her backstory on page, or Fabian Cortez. Absolutely not, just joking, he wishes. Thank you, Fox Data. So a couple different questions there. In terms of who should be Mystique and Destiny's third, bling is too young for them. I would want yes. them to, like, I think uh, it would need to be, honestly, like, I would love to see them maybe just, like, have a party with Celine, and we don't need to know any details, but they're just yeah. vibing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's the other like iconic a, lesbian villain yeah. of the X-Men franchise. Or, like, a hate-hate thing with Moira. 
well that moira is their third is the thing yeah so like that's the that's the real thing is that like moira is the unicorn that they can never quite catch right <laughs> um <laughs> As for other precogs, I do think that she'll probably play a role in the resurrection of her great-granddaughter, Blindfold, who we know is going to be part of the Legion of Axe. Larry Trask, I think, is probably being kept way down far on the protocols because I don't think it serves Krakoa PR-wise for anybody to know that there ever were Trask mutants, right? So I like I think that the us versus them of the Trasks is something we probably want to preserve, which is not right, but I'm just saying it, it seems to me like it's the decision Emma would make, I think, right? Right. right. And if, certainly and, the one Charles and, would make, because Charles doesn't yeah. want anybody to know about Cassandra Nova because it was his sister who did that. And and the thing is, is if, if everybody did things right, you wouldn't have a good story. Correct. So I, uh, yeah, I think Larry is probably out, but I think that Ruth will be back in part because of Irene's intervention. Whether or not we see that explicitly, I think it should be implied. And she's she's got such ties to Legion too. Well, yeah, she's Legion's girlfriend and Destiny is this person who's super tied to Legion. So I think, I mean, quite honestly, part of me is like, so this is my like big galaxy brain thing where I said like, maybe she had children at all because she knew that Ruth would have to exist. Mm -hmm. What if she knew that Ruth would have to exist because Ruth is what tempers Legion and helps him Mm -hmm. become a functional person? Then it's all part, it's all interconnected. Like Irene knows that Legion is going to kill her, also knows that her great-granddaughter will teach him how to love like there's so many levels you could have to this which is a lot to put on your grandkid too sure is i mean but she never interacted with the girl so it's not like she did it herself she just saw what would happen right yep their only interaction is that time in necrotia and yes that is one of the few times that irene gets something totally wrong but they set it up for you by having her say when two precogs are in proximity we Mm -hmm. fuck with each other's senses Mm-hmm. Um, which is an interesting tidbit that I would like to see explored more now that they're both going to be back. Yes, absolutely. Lace Gray writes, hello, Connor and guest, longtime listener, first time caller. We all know Destiny mostly for her amazing legs and her prankster personality, but her mutant powers and precognition shouldn't be overlooked. How often has Destiny been proven correct by her various writers? Has anyone gone out of their way to make her wrong? Till Krakoa does the can-can, make mine Cerebro. So as you were just saying, that's an example of her being wrong. Usually, though, yep. she is always right. There are a couple really critical stories where we find out that she's super right. Like she predicted the 12 and yes. Apocalypse and all of that. Yes. She saw Fall of the Mutants coming. She knew that M-Day was coming. That is in the diaries. Mm-hmm. And the Birth of Hope in the Messiah Complex. Chaos War establishes that she predicted the Chaos War. Chaos War also involves her possessing Moira when they both get resurrected, but (laughs) it has to be the Gollum Moira, so we just can't think too much about Chaos War, so don't worry too much about that. She knew that Wolverine was going to die. She knew how she could bring back Wolverine or that Raven could, uh, and Mm -hmm. she knew that Krakoa was coming. So she's always right, and the way that that works is that very few writers have her make predictions. Yes. Like you don't have, you you just establish post facto, oh, Destiny said that would happen. Yeah. That's why the Cuckoo's thing is so shocking because it's unusual for her to do that. The only other time she's really done that was the Forge thing with Mystique. And then a lot of different writers tried to decide what that meant. And I think that Inferno has put a bullet in it, not to be, uh, you know, cute, but. The Forge thing with Mystique and, uh, Rogue leaving Rogue losing her powers and all of that with the X-Men. Yeah, Rogue's arc with the X-Men. Rogue or someone else is going to lose their powers depending on Mm -hmm. how this event plays out, etc. Or like Rogue is going to die and fall of the mutants. Like those are the Mm -hmm. times that she's said it before it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, 
usually it's post facto we establish that Irene knew something was going to happen that has already happened or that is happening. Which is a really great narrative trick because usually it's post facto and then usually it's there are too many possible futures I don't know. So right. because you have those two things established, when she does give a prediction in the moment, you know that shit's going to happen. It's a big it's fucking a huge deal. deal. Yeah. Steph writes, hi, Connor and Nola. I'm so excited we've arrived at the Destiny episode because what a time for Irene fans. May Krakoa continue to bask in her pitch-perfect sass. My question broadly relates to Marvel's quite recent promotion of Mystique and Destiny as a flagship OTP. For example, part of the Stormbreaker's greatest couples covers. In the Cerebro episode on The Bitch Val Cooper, Connor mentioned that Mystique, after some period of being off page, is often reset by new writers. Do you feel that in addition to her tricky to write powers, Irene remained dead as long as she did because Raven is easier to write a certain way without a profound romantic partner? And do you see Raven's characterization being handled differently going forward now that Irene is back? Thanks so much. Looking forward to all that's planned in 2022. Steph Diodati. So yes, that's literally exactly why I think she stayed dead. I think it's the combination I, of the powers are hard to write around and we want Mystique to be single. I think it's sort of those two. And also I, at the time, we don't know if we'll ever be able to say that they're a couple anyway, so it's awkward yes. to have her around. Yes. Well, and that and not like I'm not going to name specific creators or editors, but I think that there were people in charge who were absolutely against portraying them as queer after right. Claremont was gone. I, yes. I think that there was absolutely a bias against that. And I think one of the reasons that she stayed dead as long as she did is that they did not want to go there. They didn't want to do If you it. bring her back, you have to describe what their relationship is. Exactly. And I think that that was the hesitation. I think that now that she is back, it seems clear to me that these are now a pair. They're paired characters. We're not going to have Mystique gadding about in romances with other people unless it's something Irene told her she should do, is my suspicion. You know? Yeah. Even looking at the Sabretooth mini, like the solicit for it, Victor Laval has in his internal monologue, Victor refer to Mystique as Lini because Lini Sauber is the identity he knew her under. And the implication there for me is like, Raven and Victor have no relationship. Lini and Victor had a relationship. Raven in the present, that's not something that we're going to read. Which was always you know a I mean? con on her part. It I, was always I, a yeah. con, right. I love that about her. I love that about her too. Kathleen Snook writes, Hi, Connor, an esteemed guest. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. It's really amazing to learn more about the X-Men through a queer lens. The time and energy you put into the podcast really shows, and each guest is incredible. My question is, what do you see the Cohen perception of Destiny to be now that she's on the Quiet Council? She has the whole Oracle of Delphi vibe going on and often seems more mythical than real, especially as her face is usually hidden behind that ominous mask. Do the Krakoans see her as a former terrorist or maybe more like a new god in the Krakoan pantheon? Similarly, who would make up her hype squad and be one of her priests or priestesses besides Exodus? Hopefully this makes some amount of sense, Kathleen. I don't know that former terrorist holds a lot of meaning for people. The amnesty seems like something people are really trying to take seriously, which I think yeah. is nice. And there are so many people, so many mutants who have been called terrorists. The right. X-Men themselves have been called terrorists. Like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, in retrospect, kind of knew what they were talking about, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like the poison ivy thing, not to not to it, jump. No, too it far absolutely outside. is. That's yeah. a great example. Poison ivy has been vindicated by history to the point that it no longer makes sense to depict poison ivy as a villain. So they yes, don't. yes, as in she she was called an eco terrorist for years and years and years. But and now it's like oh wait, eco terrorists right. were right. Like yeah. oops, you know that's the thing. So I think it's one of those kinds of situations. As for who would be in her hype squad, I can't wait 
to see her and Rogue interact. I'm sure we will see that. I know that mm-hmm. people were upset. Hickman sometimes says a lot about things he didn't get to do. And I'm like, you shouldn't tell people because they'll get sad. But he mentioned that he had to cut that Rogue was going to play a part in resurrecting Destiny and he had to cut that for time in Inferno. Um, But I'm sure that someone is going to pick that up, whether it's Kieran or Jerry or, you know, somebody else like that is going to that'll be somewhere. Um, And Rogue, I think, will be a pretty key character for Destiny, probably like going forward. They have a really tight bond. Raven and Rogue have a really fraught relationship, whereas Uh it seems like Rogue and Irene have a very uncomplicated love relationship in terms of how Rogue feels about her. And Avalanche is back now. And Pyro and Blob have both gotten pretty good characterizations in Krakoa. And I yeah. feel like I feel like the old Brotherhood squad is going to be there. We could get the gang back Destiny. together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I do think that there will be people who worship her on some side note, as well. Side note, it is fascinating to me that we are just now seeing Avalanche, given that Blob is bartending in the Green Lagoon and Avalanche's entire deal around Gillen's last tenure was running a bar in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, I he just, could have been there this whole time. He could have. Justice for Dominikos Petrakis, <laughs> who in my head is a gay king who loves his summer in Mykonos. Um, I mean, he was running a bar in San Francisco. San Francisco. Come on. <laughs> Elizabeth writes, hello, Connor and esteemed guests. It's lovely to see Raven's favorite precog finally get her own episode and the respect she deserves in the Krakoan era. I've been waiting for this episode ever since I heard the story about Destiny's Ashes. My question is about Ruth Aldean, Blindfold, and her relationship to Destiny. Now that they're both alive again, do you think their possible relationship that was mentioned once, I think in Necrotia, will be explored? And how would you want it explored? I personally would love to see Ruth get a family that doesn't, you know, try to kill her with a chainsaw. Maybe Rogue could pop by and try to be an aunt. I don't know. It's been on my mind ever since I read Spurrier's Legacy. I feel like this turned into a blindfold question. Sorry, make mine cerebro. Elizabeth, Sue on the Discord. So we talked about this a little bit already, but yes, I really do think that that will be explored. I hope it will be explored. Spurrier clearly is invested in the connection between those characters in the run of Spurrier's legacy. Ruth takes the name Destiny by the end, like becomes a legacy heroine. That did not last, but clearly Ruth is invested in the legacy of her family, not the abusive brother that she had, but her great grandmother she never knew who has passed down this gift and curse to her. And I am sure that we will see more of them interacting. And honestly, let her, let her keep using that name. If you're going to bring her back in the current era, let her keep using the name destiny. The precedent is established with, with Laura. With the Wolverines. I I mean, I think that that's confusing with the Wolverines and especially with destiny. Who's not that well-known a character who they're reestablishing right now. I don't know. I do think that blindfold is a shitty code name and I would like to give her a different one. I suggested Revelation, which That's I think would one. be cute. But, That's a good uh, one, yeah. you know, there's there's lots of... Oh, also, one of the things in my Destiny is Jewish fact file, her great-granddaughter's named Ruth. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty Jewish name to have. Mm-hmm. Not all mm-hmm. Ruths are Jewish, but just putting that out there. Yeah. Harini Marchati writes, Hello, Connor and Nola. My question has to do with Destiny's feelings about the BBC show Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> She is, canonically, from my understanding, the actual Irene Adler from the Sherlock Holmes stories. I'm pretty sure that due to the sliding timescale, she was dead by the time BBC Sherlock came out. So how does she feel now that she's alive again about her depiction on that show as a kinky bisexual dominatrix? How does she feel about Sherlock Holmes adaptations in general, given that Sherlock is actually her wife? Does she know about the Sherlock Holmes anime? Thank you, Harini Marchati. I don't think she cares. Yeah, I think that she is flattered that people are still talking about them, but she's just like, we did that. 
like the, the yeah. real story is much better than anything you're ever going to see. In a well, and it's, TV. it's, it's also that thing where like when you're semi-public in any capacity and people start talking about you, it's weird to like, listen to that. It's weird yeah. to, to, but to interface with that. Listen, I mean, like, I am a public figure in a very small way in that I have Same. this podcast and people Same. interact with it. And I have a big Twitter following from my agent and career yes. or whatever. But like, those are very micro ways to be a public yes. figure. It's very strange. Yes. It's strange all the time. Like people yes. say things to you that are strange. Yeah. And you just have to eat that because yeah. you've decided get, to put yourself out there, you know? Yeah. We get the barest, the barest Compared to anyone we know who writes these fucking comics. I mean, like, you know, anybody with a remote level of celebrity, it's crazy. I think that Irene long ago, my read is, I bet she thinks it's really fucking funny that Raven's male presenting detective identity has become an enduring pop culture icon and that she is like the mysterious woman he's in love with. That I think is really funny to her. It's the yes. kind of thing that she would find amusing. So I think that yes. she's mostly into that. Joseph probably was like, Lara Palmer's hot. This is fine with me. Like on a personal note, not a big fan of the, of the BBC Sherlock. Me did either, love, but that character was great. Did love Irene Adler as a, as a, as a dominatrix. Did yeah, love I mean, I hate how Stephen Moffat writes women, but that's... Yes. Yeah, we don't have to get into yeah. it because this is not a BBC I mean, podcast. Right. It. I will say it is very in keeping with... Claremont and the way that it she is. likes And you know, women. it's funny. I love Claremont's women and I just don't love Moffat's. And I don't know what yeah. that says about me, but it's uh it's just it's just one of those things. There's a smell test that Moffat doesn't pass, is sort of how yes. I feel about it for me, in my male opinion. So, you know, great as <laughs> <laughs> well, in my female opinion, also. There you go. Rebecca Galt writes, hi to Connor and a scene guest Nola. First note is the most essential. Connor, I'd love to note that I am in fact Scottish. And if you'd like to do your best Claremontian Scots, I would be thrilled. Very excited. <laughs> Rebecca's great. She's a B in the Discord. She's a big, um, she's just really fun. She's a Scottish lesbian who teaches about the monstrous feminine as a TA. And if that's not a Chris Claremont character, I don't know who is. Very excited to be writing in for the first time. And so I have to do the obligatory thank you for the pod. This has been carrying me through doing a master's during a pandemic and also generally doing excellent work, sending me down rabbit holes of academia about 1998 JRPGs. You know what you did. Oh, she's she's like in her 20s and I told her about Parasite Eve and now she oh. doesn't know everything about Parasite Eve. She's yes. writing up an academic paper now on Parasite Eve and I did that. That was me. Because I was like, the Gen Z lesbians need to know about 1998's yeah, Parasite they Eve. Really do. Squaresoft. They need to know. They really do. With regards to destiny, destin, destiny, destiny, my <laughs> destiny. My question is a little bit silly, but also fun. What very modern and cutting age trends did Destiny foresee well before they became a thing? Did she upset Raven by insisting they had to shop at Trader Joe's? Does she own platform docks? Was she the first person to claim that Moriarty had awful vibes? If so, what trends do you think she hated before they ever came to fruition? Thanks as always, much love, B. I think I got a little Irish there at the end, sorry. But the Irish people now listening are like, no, you didn't. Because uh, <laughs> my accents, my Irish, my Irish and Scottish accents are not good. But you know what? They're fun. Uh, and you know what? The thing is, Scottish people and Irish people in my head speak like Chris Claremont characters. So I was glad mm-hmm. to be identified that way. So like, I think that my accents are very good for Chris Claremont characters. Like that oh, is absolutely. how it's written on the page. So, yeah. you know, that's not my fault. I was, that's, that's, I learned it from watching Chris. Um mm-hmm. 
I think that Irene absolutely saw fashion trends coming because here's the thing, like Raven is wearing her mystique outfit like in 1898 in Mm -hmm. certain scenes, like in that one that Teeny did in the Pride Anthos. So for all we know, Irene was like, that's a great outfit, babe. It's going to be so chic in 1981. But you should start wearing it now when we're alone together because you look hot in it. Exactly. As for for things that she foresaw, I feel like she would hate... Jinkos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What's fashion in general? Like, I bet in the the diaries, like, when she, we find out that she left Rogan Inheritance, there's probably also a note that's just like, dearest Anna, please do not wear low-rise jeans. They don't look good (laughs) on anybody. Love, mom. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just one of those, or like, the frilly ruffle tube top. Don't buy it. It's going to look so bad in only three years' time. You know, that, you that would have been a good a moment. It would have been a good moment to intercede in your daughter's fashion choices from beyond the grave in about 2001 to 2003. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that probably, that probably happened. Um, I think she probably really was excited about the advent of the radio, which she would oh, have known yeah. was coming before it came. Probably anything to do with the dissemination of information. Yeah, like even if she can't watch TV, she's probably excited about TV news coming. Like we're going to see, you know, it's going to, people are going to know more things. Then she saw cable news coming. I was like, shit. But, you know, (laughs) what are you going to do? You win some, you lose some. Now I want to see a story about them trying to prevent 24-hour cable news from happening. Like Anchorman 2, but Mystique and Destiny are interfering. Um, (laughs) Last question. Krakoa Welcomes writes, greetings from the past, New Year's Eve 2021. <laughs> what are your bold predictions for the X-Men franchise in the rest of 2022? And what is one prediction from each of you for 2032? Hmm. I don't have any bold predictions because uh, one, I have ideas for things that I would like to see happen. And that's I... my thing is I would love to write a comic at some point. So mm-hmm. I don't want to, like my thing, Anthony Oliveira yes. said to me after like his, second time on the show how do you have to stop telling everyone about all your great ideas because maybe someday you'll get to write about them in a comic and i was like you know what you're absolutely right so uh i try not to share too many future predictions anymore the other problem is i have two clients in the x office now um and it puts them in an awkward position if i start speculating too much about what they're going to do in their books so i'm not going to do that However, a 2032 prediction that I will happily make is that I think Krakoa will be thriving in 2032. In true destiny fashion, I have one prediction that is going to be absolutely correct, whether it be this coming year or 10 years from now, and that is suffering. Yeah, the X-Men do that. They do that (laughs) a lot. Nola, thank you so much for being my guest. Do you have anything else you'd like to say about destiny before we wrap up? I love that she's back. Destiny forever. Let Destiny take the head of the Quiet Council, put her in charge of everything. She's the smartest, she's the best, and she can do no wrong. I really hope that it is not a mislead and that Celine really is taking Magneto's seat on the council because can you imagine Charles sitting in that big chair and on either side of him at the head table are Celine and Irene? I love that for us. Like mutant kind's past and its future. Mm-hmm. That's who should be sitting with Charles at that head table. You know, you've got you've got Celine, you've got Destiny, you've got Mister Sinister, you've got Apocalypse, you've got Magneto. There are so many people on the Quiet Council and guiding the future of mutants that are 
from such a long time in the past. Well, that's the thing is I think that replacing, I mean, my guess for who's actually going to take that seat is Hope Summers, but mm. I think it would be fun if Celine sits there for a little while at least. Oh, and, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. I just think that the point with Apocalypse being replaced by Destiny is like, instead of looking to the past, we're looking to the future. Yes, but I also absolutely. think that those who don't look at the past are doomed to repeat it. And nobody can yes. tell you more about the oppression faced by mutants for 17,000 years than Celine yes. Gallio. Yes. She managed to find a way to secure power over and over again, but she's seen it. She was a witch, a goddess, a demon, a vampire, long before anyone knew what a gene was. A bitch, a child, a mother, a sinner. All of it. A sinner, a saint. She does (laughs) not feel ashamed. So, (laughs) you know, she's a little bit of everything all rolled into one. Nola, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? You can find me on most social media as Nola Fau. That's N-O-L-A-P-F-A-U. German uh, for peacock, much like Adler is German for eagle. Correct. Uh, and that is, I want to stress P-F, because every time I spell it out for somebody, they put P-H, and you will not find me that way. No, it's Fau. Exactly. Like Michelle Pfeiffer, guys. Exactly. Exactly like that. You can find me most social media under that handle. And of course, there is uh, womenwriteaboutcomics.com. Wawak. Wawak. Find me there. Read our stuff. And you do some stuff at ComicsXF also, reviews. I do. I write for ComicsXF here and there. Yeah. Sometimes I'm on Vulture. Sometimes uh, I've written for Shelf Dust. She's around around. and she's good. Google her. Find some stuff that she wrote. It's good. Nola, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great treat to have you here. I'd love to have you back sometime. Absolutely. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com. Please join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will get an ad-free experience plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes. More of those are coming soon. I have a monthly AMA that I'm going to be doing this year. That should be going out. And I have other bonus episodes coming. I just confirmed something with Friends of the Pod, Zoe Tunnell and Valentine Smith that I think people are really going to enjoy. I have other fun stuff coming down the pipe. So please join us on Patreon because I have to pay my rent. February's episodes will be Justin Park on Sunfire, Josh Cornillon on Stacey X, Victor Laval on Sabretooth, and Kat Overland on Chamber. You can send any questions there to cerebrocast at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 